0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Happy Friday, folks. Welcome to the program. You made it. Another week. You did it. You wondered, you know, you wondered on Monday. Am I going to be able to do this? But you did, and congratulations. Yes, the fans are going crazy. It's Friday. Friday means fun day. We're going to, uh, we got a lot to talk about, a lot to get through, but um, I thought Monday
2: was the fun day.
3: Monday is... The manic Monday? Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, the song... That's when you're lying to yourself because it's Monday and nobody actually likes Mondays, so you try to figure out a way to make it a positive experience. Have you ever met anybody that just loved a good Monday?
1: Um,
2: no, yeah, no
1: Friday's just easy to love, even if you love your job, if you love everything about life, Friday's great because now you get to just work all weekend in your yard.
2: We were good the whole week. now we can just go crazy, yeah, it's really good. Apparently, I've got a fungus growing in my yard. I'm
3: glad you said yard
2: too much information a tree oh, in, your know, yard. in my yard in your yard, yeah. okay, that's fine. Which is, you know, nothing I love
1: more than getting to solve that problem now. Like, why do we need a
2: yard? You said it was in your tree? It's around my tree. Then you can use those uh, tree bombs. Have you ever used one of those before? No. Tell me about it. Well, it's a bomb. For a tree. That you put in your tree. okay. What's it for? Well, it'll explode your fungus problem. Oh, well, that's great. Aye,
1: aye, aye, Yeah, I rake up my grass and it just, there's no roots. So there's something there. It's either fungus or something's eating the roots of my grass. Oh, there it goes, my tree bomb. So that's what I'm looking forward to. How about you? This is why it might be better if you could just move into an inner city neighborhood where you don't need to worry about a yard. Today, we're, we're talking about gentrification. And uh, inequality in the fight for the inner city neighborhood, because as inner cities become more vibrant and vital, a lot of uh, people want to move in. And generally when they want to move in, you have to displace people that already live there. And so it ends up just so they end up making nice, really nice properties. That it tends to be rich, affluent white people then move into the city and kick out those that have been living in the city for 50 years. Just like what happened in the suburbs.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: So we're
4: so talking these are, about
2: it. These are people that are paying rent then,
1: obviously. Some might be renters. And then all of a sudden the developers realize, man, we could make a lot of money if we turned these rentals into condos and sold them and people could move into these condos. And then we can get a different type of clientele in this area. It's called gentrification, and we're going to be talking with a, a person that wrote a book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. Um, it's really a very interesting thing because you don't, you don't realize it, but you might be seeing it happening in your own downtown areas, in your own cities. And you got to fight for this because if you don't have low-income housing, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. they got to go somewhere. But then you're actually changing the culture of the city as well. Very interesting topic coming up in a few minutes. We'll also um, be talking with McKenna Baus later in the hour. She'll do a little mind bender for us. Always gets us thinking. Sometimes you don't want to think on a Friday. But she'll get us thinking. It'll be good. And, of course, the headlines with Terry South. So let's start there. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be paying attention to?
3: According to a report from CNN, U.S. authorities are preparing charges to seek the arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, according to officials who spoke about the matter. The Justice Department investigation of Assange and WikiLeaks go back to uh, to at least 2010, at which time WikiLeaks became known for posting thousands of documents stolen by former U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. During Obama's administration, the uh, the Obama administration Justice Department determined that bringing charges against Assange would be difficult because WikiLeaks was not the sole publisher of all the documents. Somehow that has changed, and now they're moving forward with trying to arrest him. He's in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, so good luck with that. But <laughs> Break a leg on that. Not sure if they, th- there was a story they were going to cut off his Wi-Fi, but I'm not sure if that happened.
1: No. I want to know yeah. because
3: he's still publishing things. How, that, how but he also, does that work? He seems
1: like he's been quieter. I don't know.
3: I don't know. Well, he's tried to make some announcements during the election cycle, but the announcements uh, came up, uh, they attribute nothing. It came out, nothing came out of any of these announcements. Reporters had to get up at four in the morning. They were not happy. Yeah. So they're not paying attention
2: anymore. See, that would work with the millennial. Just cut off their Wi-Fi access and oh, they'll no. do whatever you want.
3: That's right. You've them to your will. You own them. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions dismissed the Hawaii judge who ruled against President Trump's travel ban as a judge sitting on an island in the Pacific. Appearing Wednesday evening on a radio show, Sessions said, I really am amazed that a judge sitting on an island in the Pacific can issue an order that stops the President of the United States from what appears to be clearly his statutory and constitutional power. Hawaii-based U.S. Senator Mazie Harano, a Democrat, tweeted in response, Hey, Jeff. Uh, hey, yes. Hey, Jeff Sessions. This oh. island in the Pacific has been the 50th state for going on 58 years. <laughs> which it's mean, not Gilligan's Island. Meaning, the federal judge there is the same as every other federal judge. That's how the checks and balances work. Should, should one should one judge in uh, Alabama yeah. be able to shut it down? Probably in Sessions' eyes, sure. Right. But he wouldn't because he's a good American. It's called Hawaii, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of dismissed it. Yeah. Three Seattle police officers shot and wounded Thursday after responding to a robbery, authorities said. Two suspects in the shooting have been taken into custody. A third, a 19-year-old who has not been identified, was reported dead at the scene after a standoff with police. that saw the center of the city cordoned off and residents told to shelter in place. The shooting occurred around 1.40 p.m. at a downtown 7-Eleven. Uh, convenience store the police spent much of the afternoon hunting down the suspects one officer shot was reported in serious but stable condition late thursday after suffering a gunshot wound to his face and rib cage another suffered less serious injuries was in satisfactory condition a third had a hand wound from a bullet and sought care later in the day uh two suspects arrested one i I believe as we talked about was dead there but yeah all over stuff they took from a 7-eleven Really? You've been to a 7-Eleven lately? Uh, Anything in there you want to die for? <laughs> no, not at all.
1: I don't know, a Slurpee.
3: Geez, really? That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Um, have you heard of Juicero? Uh, I think Jeff had it. He had, he, yeah, it sounds like a thing you get, not yeah. a thing you buy. Is it, wasn't it an infection?
2: Actually, it sounds like a prescription drug.
0: Juicero!
3: So Ju- Juicero, as described here, is one of the most lavishly funded gadget startups in Silicon Valley last year. It make it's a juice machine. Okay, Juicero, the product was an unlikely pick for top technology investors, but they were drawn to the idea of an internet connected device that transforms single serving packets of chopped fruits and vegetables into a refreshing and healthy beverage. Hmm. Google venture capital, uh, capital arm and other backers poured about one hundred twenty million dollars into the startup. Really, Juicero sells their machine sells for four hundred dollars plus the cost of an individual juice packs delivered weekly to your home. So the idea is you don't have to chop up your own vegetables and fruit. We'll deliver the juice packs. It comes all pre-packed, pre-ready to go. You just put it in the machine, and the machine's connected to Wi-Fi so it can tell you when the juice packs go bad.
2: Oh, how convenient. Ah. So right. wait a minute. Is this like a, a Blendtec where you can put other things in it too?
3: No, it's just for juicing. Sheesh. Yeah, 400 bucks just to make your juice.
1: Well, interesting. And – um. It's just juice, right?
3: Yeah. Just juice. Is it magical juice? Like no. does it help you
2: regrow a lost it's, appendage? It's or? healthy.
3: It's healthy juice.
2: Well you gain a superpower.
3: You could just chop up your own fruits and vegetables and throw them into a blender, but yeah. know, or a juicer. Whatever. Or a juicer. Yeah. Juicero is now offering all of its customers the option to return their juicer for a full refund within the next thirty days, even if they bought it as far back as when the product launched a year ago. The offer comes after Bloomberg published a story yesterday pointing out that the packets of pre-cut fruits and vegetables that Juicero, a very expensive juicer, was designed to press don't actually need to be pressed in the juicer. Turns out you can actually squeeze them by hand to get the same effect that you get from the $400 juicer. Yeah, but see, that was, the other, that was the other machine they built called the Hand Squeezero. So while Juicer's product was uh, always going to be unnecessary insofar it was ridiculous, Wi-Fi connected luxury juicer, the fact that it isn't even needed to create the juice makes the product truly unnecessary.
1: Unnecessary juicer. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I totally so, agree, Sean.
3: Juicero CEO Jeff Dunn, who took over the position in November, posted a response on Medium. Uh, today, arguing that the value of Juicero is more than just a glass of cold-pressed juice, much more. He goes on to outline two scenarios where juicer, or Juicero would be valuable. One involves someone drinking juice. The other involves someone getting a notification to remind them to drink juice before their juice packets expire, and their internet-connected juicer refuses to press them. These are why wow. it's important. To buy a four hundred, yeah. So the video Bloomberg put up, they had the juicer, they had someone holding one of these packs of, of vegetables, all pre-packed and chopped, and they they started squeezing the pack as they hit the button on the juicer to start the process of juicing the pack that was in it, and they were able to hand squeeze the juice faster than the machine was able to juice it,
2: <laughs> and it came out mm. in the same
3: consistency that you just by hand juicing. Something's fishy in the juicer, yeah. Juicero. So,
2: See, now they ought to develop that business where you just can squeeze these packets mm-hmm. and that makes this meal for you. Packet squeeze. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, think, I think we're onto something I there. I think we are too. And I don't know. I just like
1: naming it, but I like the idea of end, adding an arrow at the end of it, like squeeze Sque- arrow. Squeeze
2: a meal. Squeeze oatmeal. Oatmeal. Squeeze oatmeal. No, I think we're getting further away from yeah. the gold here. Unbelievable! So just wow.
3: ridiculous. $400. People, I mean,
2: if you're going to spend four hundred dollars, it seems like you may as well just I don't know buy a Blendtec, go buy a, an exercise machine. You could go get a Blendtec. That'll because that not only will that make juice, but it'll blend everything for you.
0: That's
1: right.
2: Plus, blend, I mean everything, even your cell phone, if yeah. you need it. A rake, <laughs> yeah.
1: An iPad. I need a I need a new rake. blended a little bit. Just I just want it gently squeezed.
2: By the way, when our old Blendtec was going out, I would use a wooden spoon to kind of get things chopped up in there when we were making shakes. Yeah. So our chocolate shakes for a few weeks had some uh, some wood chips in
1: them. You had a chipper. Fiber. Maybe the problem (laughs) was uh, maybe that's why your Blendtec went out. Because, I we, you know, I we've had a Blendtec, and we've had it for years, and it's never gone out.
2: I may have just... Uh, we never put a wood spoon in it, though, either. I may have just admitted to something on the air that yeah. will void my warranty. <laughs> yeah, you just voided your <laughs> warranty. Too bad for you. All right, crazy
1: stuff. Uh, you know, time to start juicing. I know we'll give you a break to go do that. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to kill a city. And you might want to be listening because it's possible that your city government is... Uh, is maybe running out some of those that made your community what it is. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard of the term gentrification? Uh, if you haven't, it's time to listen up because there there may be going on. There may be something going on in your neighborhood, uh, in our urban cities across the country, and um, something may be, I don't know, amiss, and it may actually be damaging, maybe harming your community, maybe losing some of your most valuable citizens. In fact. The term gentrification has been a buzzword to describe changes in urban neighborhoods across the country, but we don't necessarily realize how, just how threatening it is. Peter Moskowitz joins us. He's here on the line today to discuss his book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today.
5: Thanks for having me. This
1: is, um, this is I, I saw it. In fact, I saw it yesterday driving through downtown Salt Lake City. They're building new mm-hmm. condominiums. That, that are really nice, and I'm sitting there, and they're in a part of the city that I'm wondering, well, man, historically, nobody that lived here, down here before, could probably afford these condominiums. Who's right. buying these things? So talk to us. What First of all, define for us, what is gentrification?
5: Sure. So I don't think gentrification has a, a precise uh, definition, uh, at this point, And I kind of like that because it means that, you know, average people, not just academics are using it. Um, I've even heard it used to describe, you know, the gentrification of hip hop, you mm, know, with, yeah. with, uh, yeah, like people like Macklemore white rappers coming in and, and kind of, uh, you know, u- using um, music that's been historically, uh, black. So, so I, I do like that it, the definition is kind of amorphous, but, um, Specifically with development um, and cities, um, when I'm looking at gentrification, what I'm seeing is this very top-down process. It's not so much about you know a hipster moving into a city and you know opening a coffee shop. It's not so much about you know an artist here or there. It's about this redevelopment strategy uh, between uh, usually corporations um, and and city governments um, to uh wholesale uh redevelop neighborhoods and displace uh low income people.
1: And is is it is it uh, cuz so so is it the is it the government the cities that just aren't paying attention and and developers come in and you know they want to get the highest price for their properties um or are they in cahoots with the government?
5: Um i think it can be either you know both yeah when when you when you look at the historic disinvestment in cities um you know through the fifties sixties seventies what you know that period of quote unquote white flight uh that that was really government sponsored white flight when when you look at things like uh a redlining, which was the uh, inability of, of uh, African-Americans and other people of color to get mortgages and therefore move out to the suburbs. Right. What you had was a government-sponsored disinvestment in the inner city. So now when you see, uh, you know, those new condos in that neighborhood that you were just talking about, for example, you know, that just makes economic sense that the city's been disinvested from real estate is cheap, and therefore it makes sense for, for a company to come in and say, well, let's snap this up for cheap, build a fancy condo here, and, and sell it for more money. Um, but, but I do, I do think the government is still involved, uh, in the process in the sense that, uh, gentrification almost always benefits a city's bottom line. You know, uh, our our cities are run on property taxes, uh, and, and local, um, uh, city taxes. And the more, the more fancy condos you have in a neighborhood, the more, uh, wealthy people you have in a neighborhood, the more, uh, tax revenue you have. So, so cities, uh. Kind of get addicted to that kind of cash,
1: right? And it, well, many you can see would say it it revitalizes um, the community, but it, well I guess what it, you're saying is it revitalizes the community maybe financially, but culturally mm-hmm. we may have you know an exodus of culture. T- talk about the risks of gentrification.
5: Great. Right. So I think in an ideal world, revitalization wouldn't uh, equate to displacement, but. In this world, it does. Um, yeah. If you look at essentially uh, any neighborhood where a government puts in a new, let's say, train line or a new bus line or, or starts even plant things like planting trees, um, automatically the real estate values start increasing. And what that does is that pushes uh, poor, poor people out of the neighborhood eventually. Um, it, you know, it depends on the city, but if you look at a place like New York, um, where, where I grew up, um, or San Francisco, you know people people are literally wary of things like new trees being planted because they 've seen uh, they 've seen what happens after that they 've seen all of a sudden uh, the the house across the street sells for a million dollars, and then the one next to it sells for a million dollars and this kind of domino effect mm. um, so you know i don 't think anyone would say there 's <laughs> something wrong with trees being planted obviously right. but uh, but without uh, protections for the poor. Um, with, without a more comprehensive uh, redevelopment strategy that a, a accounts for low-income people, uh, these things inevitably, inevitably end up uh, displacing people.
1: Give us some examples. What are you seeing in um, cities around the country when it comes to, to, to this, I guess, just this, uh, this lack of attention in a way, this, this, this runaway um, real estate mm. problem?
5: Yeah, so so in my book, I uh, looked at four cities, and I spent a month living in each reporting, um, and those cities were New York, where I'm from, uh, San Francisco, uh, Detroit, and New Orleans. Um, And I found the most kind of problematic strategies in New Orleans and Detroit, especially New Orleans uh, 10 years after Hurricane Katrina. Um, The city kind of used that storm to redevelop the city into a more rich and frankly whiter city. Uh, Right after the storm, Governor Kathleen Blanco, the governor at the time, said it took the storm of a lifetime to create the opportunity of a lifetime. And uh, the city went about uh, demolishing uh, almost every single public housing project in the city. Uh, It uh, turned over every public school into a charter school. Um, And uh, that combined with inadequate federal aid for people to rebuild their homes, ended up leaving New Orleans with, uh, as of today, it has nearly 100,000 fewer African-Americans living in it than it did pre-Katrina. Um, and, and that's a city of about not even 500,000. Oh,
1: it's wow. A huge drop. 20% yeah. of their population.
5: Right. So, and now the population is back up to, uh, to what it was pre-Katrina, but it's, it's been infilled with mostly white residents. Um, so, but if you talk to politicians there now, they say the city's doing great because financially it's in better shape than it was before Katrina. Um, but they, but by ignoring that kind of factor of inequality and and that racial factor, they're they're ignoring all the re- residents they left behind. Oh yeah, and it's, I mean,
1: it's almost like they were just swept away. It's almost like they were right. swept away in the hurricane. <laughs> I mean yeah. and some of them were I guess some were displaced to other states you know with the idea I guess that they would go back but if there's no housing you don't right. go back.
5: There's no right there's no housing and uh FEMA uh would do things like uh give one way plane tickets um to people to places as far away as Utah and Yeah, we uh, have
1: them, yeah.
5: Yeah, <sighs> I actually pro- I profiled a woman who, you know, she uh she was given a one-way plane ticket to Utah. She didn't even know where she was being put on a plane to, um, and just got off. And they were like, "Well, this is where you, you're, you're welcome
0: to Utah." Uh, yeah, exactly.
5: Yeah, and she, you know, it took her years and years to kind of like claw her way back to the city.
1: Unbelievable. And um, I mean, all in the all in the guise of being helpful, and right. and yet, um, so, I mean, I guess this is the thing that because somebody's making these policies right and mm-hmm. is it is it just that we're not paying attention is it because i mean i i we hear fights all the time uh, even in my own city about you know laws and um uh bringing in homeless shelters or low income housing yeah. and you and it creates some pretty intense fighting and arguing right. but we we you're saying there's got to be a very balanced planning going on that allows there to be a diversity of financial uh, areas where, where everyone can mm-hmm. exist in a city?
5: Great. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think you do have to take a step back and look at um, how government has been funded over over the last 50 or so years. Um, cities are kind of in this catch-22. If you look back to the 1970s, 1960s, 1950s, when federal tax rates were much much higher than they are now that those tax rates provided for things like public housing for public transit for public schools for um for really anything required to make a city function so when you look at uh, all the public housing that was built uh, post-world war ii there, there would be no money for something like that right now right um so what cities are forced to do you know you take a city like detroit which has you know, it went bankrupt. It had literally negative money in its in its bank account. Uh, it doesn't have enough tax revenue. All it can do is kind of uh, try to attract as many wealthy people as possible to uh, refill its coffers, and that's what it's been doing. Um, so if you look at downtown Detroit right now, they're giving tax breaks for people to build luxury condos, to build sports stadiums, to build whatever they, they can to attract as many people as they can. Uh, so so not to let the city off the hook for doing that, but they are in this conundrum of how do you fund a city if the only way to fund a city is by attracting wealthy
1: people. True. And and I'm sure a lot of these developers are the only ones doing the research and the studies that need to be done for city growth and city management, and maybe right. even giving those studies to the cities, but for a favor, you know, and it's... Um, Boy, it really—it's—it's a—it's a—it's a real trial. It's—I guess it's, this is the—the the dilemma. And if we're not on top of it, we end up—we end up not even knowing what we've put on a plane or pushed out or mm-hmm. redlined out of the out of the district. Is um, yeah. other you, you talk about other cities like San Francisco where. Theirs isn't like Detroit's story where everybody where the city was going bankrupt, San Francisco's booming, but mm-hmm. as more and more people come in with money t- tend to be whites um, they tend to be moving out lower mm-hmm. uh, income people as well.
5: Right. Uh San Francisco is kind of unique just because of of the tech industry and and how it uh you know descended on the city so rapidly. Um, and what that's done is put immense pressure on every single neighborhood, and San Francisco is also unique just geographically, it has such limited space that uh basically every single neighborhood all at the same time had this immense put pressure put on it so and And as I said, you know these these features that we think of as good things, whether it's uh parks or public transportation or being close to the city center. As soon as there's uh, pressure put on a city, uh, real estate-wise, those those things become amenities for for uh, real estate investors. So the neighborhoods closest to the city center, uh, which happen to be the the poorer and uh, mostly Latino neighborhoods, especially the Mission District, you know, where there's plenty of public transportation, where you can essentially walk to your job if you if you work in the tech industry, all of a sudden that was the hottest neighborhoods to develop in. And what's that, what that's done is push low-income people out into the suburbs and exurbs of of California. I, I met this one guy uh, who lives in a suburb about an hour away now called Concord. He grew up in the mission. He's Latino. Uh, he's gay. And, you know, so he was looking for a gay-friendly kind of place to live. And Concord is not that. It's a, your typical suburb. But it's the only place he can afford now. So he he's kind of living this suburbanized existence, uh-huh. wishing he could go back to the city. Um, but but that's what he can afford. And I think that's the situation a lot of people are in right now.
1: Yeah. No, and I have family there as well. And the the money you have to spend, most of them end up working in San Francisco and living in Oakland or Concord right. or anywhere else. Um, right. Is it, uh, I mean, I guess the funny thing is, is this is kind of slow moving enough that no one pays attention to it. We, we don't right. even notice this is happening. But you can imagine that in 20 years, 30 years, you will have gutted a lot of your culture, a lot of your diversity. Mm -hmm. And really, like, when when I think of New Orleans, you will have gutted, really, the flavor of New Orleans.
5: Right, exactly. And I think, I mean, that's why I wanted to write this book. I grew up at the kind of epicenter of gentrification in New York City, the West Village. Uh, My parents were, you know, hippies turned young professionals. uh, And they, like a lot of people, moved to the village Uh, And then over the, you know, over my time growing up, I saw it turn from this diverse artsy neighborhood into a place where uh, the average uh, rent for a one bedroom is $3,500 a month um, and where apartments are selling for uh, literally $20, $30 million. Man. Um, So, you know, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and I, I did want this book to be a bit of a warning to say, you know, if you don't watch out, the things that make your city, great, are going to disappear, and and you can see that in New York now too. Even the people who might be pro gentrification or pro development, uh, I even heard one of New York's biggest developers say, "We're worried about Brooklyn losing its edge." Mm. You know, so even 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 the people who are involved in this process see how destructive it can be to culture, and, um, could, and that's that. Yeah, so, I was yeah. just
1: going to say it could just be one new law. You know, it could be one new partnership. It's, it can go so fast with just one or two decisions. Peter, let's take a break, uh, come back. And when we come back, I'd love to talk about what we can do as just average citizens to make sure this doesn't happen in our community, to make sure that we're not killing our city, you know, unintentionally or just simply chasing the dollar or the best real estate dollar. How can we make a better blend? Uh, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, We are talking today about how to kill a city, and uh, you might be thinking, well, we, uh, we could do that without any help, Matt. Actually, we're trying to help you not kill your city, and we've got the author of the book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. Peter Moskowitz is his name, and Peter is a journalist and a writer based out of Philadelphia. His work focuses on the intersection of environment and human lives, and Peter, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The uh, again, the gentrification is simply um, without a definition, but defining it, it's simply the idea that we um we we find a a a certain group of people that start infiltrating uh an old way of living, an old way of being or a community that um that uh so richer people might come in, buy homes in the poor areas upgrade everything and eventually make it so everybody that was originally living in the lower income areas can't afford to live there anymore.
5: Mhm. Yeah, I mean and I think you have to include developers in that mix because as you mentioned uh at the beginning of this interview um you know seeing those condos uh downtown so often now this is a developer driven process. I mean I, I don't I don't think the average American uh can can really has the monetary power to really single-handedly gentrify a neighborhood, but yeah. developers do. The, and and really, the funny
1: thing is, is we see developers uh, with as far as with our governments and our communities as you know they're they're the helper, they're the they're the guide. Except they can come in, introduce a development, and then. You know, they don't see the impact of the development twenty years from now. They can eventually sell it off, make their money, and leave and go do the next one. But it's mm-hmm. the community and it's the government that has to pay for it. And and we're seeing in Detroit, they they couldn't pay for it.
5: Right, exactly. Um, and developer development often happens on on thirty year timelines. Uh, essentially, you know, a, a bank or a or a, a big development company will say. We want this building to be profitable for 30 years, um, and uh, that's how they work out all their expenses and, um, you know, how much to sell or rent the apartments for. So after that 30-year mark, they kind of are off the hook. You know, as long as their building hits the profit margin that they were looking for, they don't really have a reason to care about the surrounding community. Um, And I think that can be especially problematic in in poor cities like Detroit, um, where the city until recently, could barely even afford a, a proper city planning department. So what you'd have is uh, corporate developers like this uh, and, and nonprofits that are backed by them, like this place called Midtown Incorporated, uh, which would essentially create plans for an entire neighborhood um, and then just submit them to the city, and oh, wow. the city would just stamp, you know, give their stamp of approval. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so obviously, when you have corporations drawing up the plans for a city, that that's not really helpful to anyone except those who stand to benefit from those those corporate policies.
1: Right. So, what are some solutions? What can we be doing, average citizens, to make sure we're not ki- we're not killing our cities and that we're not uh, letting our city developers and our city leaders kill it?
5: Right. Um, so, I, I think the first step is to recognize. The, the roots of this problem. And if you look back throughout history, you know, to redlining in the 50s, um, and even before that, what we have is cities that have been built on inequality in the first place, and that have been built around racism in the first place. So I think that's where the solution lies is in challenging those institutions. Um, if you, you know, even before gentrification was a popular term, there were still, you know, neighborhood groups in every city Fighting new developments, there were still neighborhood groups uh, in almost every city uh, fighting housing discrimination. So gentrification is a, re- a relatively new term, and more and more people are starting to pay attention to it. But there have been people working on these issues under you know different guises, under under races, under the the banner of racism, under the banner of housing discrimination, under the banner of economic inequality for years. And I think the first thing to do is to you know literally <laughs> hop on Google and you know Google your city and and housing discrimination or, uh, or, uh, you know, housing inequality. And you'll, you'll inevitably find the people who have, have been there all along, uh, with kind of waiting for your help. Um, I think, I think especially when you look at, you know, young people, maybe college graduates moving to cities who are kind of, you know, their stereotypes is like the typical gentrifier, um, in, in places like New York, for example, um, they, they from what I've seen talking to them, they feel so overwhelmed uh, by this process. They, they see themselves as individuals who are just looking for an affordable place to live. Um, and the idea of, of challenging such a massive system uh, is is understandably overwhelming. Um, but that's why I think that that kind of just looking to the, the people who have been there already doing that google search is really one of the most helpful steps you can take.
1: It's information, really. It sounds like what we need is more education, right. more information. And, and and almost more diversity, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. if you've never if you've never been in a diverse community, maybe you need to reach out, start attending some of the more cultural activities in your city, get out, experience the different cultures and I mean, it's funny because we might enjoy food from another culture. Like in Salt Lake City, right. we have a really great Greek uh, culture and a Greek family um, or a Greek uh, uh, festival that is has got the most incredible uh, dancing and music and food. And that might be all you know about the Greek culture. <laughs> and I sit there right. and I think, man, if we could somehow – integrate these communities so we have it uh, in, you know, there's a piece of everything. It's, it becomes this melting pot. It becomes something that's truly invigorating, except it's almost like we're all too afraid and we we all stay in our groups.
5: Exactly, yeah. And I think, I mean, I understand it can be intimidating. You move to a new city. What, what meeting do you go to? What church do you go to? Uh, you know, you don't want to feel like you're being invasive or anything like that. But I think I think one of the best things you can do is just kind of getting out of that bubble. There's this author uh that I cite in the book, Sarah Shulman, who talks about the, the quote unquote gentrification of the mind, um and you know, kind of writes about how we we move to cities and see everything, you know, in this in this in this bubble. You know, you go to your gym, you go to your uh job, you you meet your same five friends, um, and you you go to your house, and that's it. Um, and we we kind of forget that there are these larger worlds surrounding us that we're living in. And I think one of the best things you can do is, you know, what's the last time you, you went to a city council meeting? What's the last time you saw a flyer for, for an activist organization and decided to go or volunteered at your uh, church group or, you know, whatever, just trying to get Get out of these bubbles and meet the people around you and see what the needs are. Because the needs the needs are going to be different in each city. The, the strategies for fighting this are going to be different in each city. But the first thing to do is to, to figure out what those needs, what the strategies are. And the best way to do that is to get out of those bubbles. So true.
1: Such great advice. Peter Moskowitz is his name. The book is How to Kill a City gentrification inequality and the fight for the neighborhood folks let's take back our neighborhood and uh, and really let's fight for it let's get more involved don't just sit there and assume that it's you know that the communities are going to to naturally just work without your involvement and don't just rely on the developers and the city officials to make all the decisions get to those council meetings as well Interesting stuff. We'll take a break when we come back. We're going to do a little coaching corner, be talking about uh, seven basic needs of a healthy neighborhood. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach.
3: Here's Dr. Matt
0: and his coaching corner. Play ball!
3: Play ball!
1: Hey, welcome back, folks! A little uh, coaching corner for you here. Um, as the mayor of Taunton Abbey, which now has about one hundred and forty-five thousand raving, excited fans. Yeah, I've. Uh, I, in fact, last night I put tone, in a high school, tone, I put in an a elementary school, I put in a library, and my 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 uh, citizens are raving. Lunatics. No, they're exciting. I knew you were going to say lunatics. they 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 just, they, they love what we're doing with the city. But as a person that's then been uh, building a fake city with 150, 45,000 people and a hundred percent happiness rating, which means the taxes go up. Wrong. Um, what I've learned is you have to take care of people. So think about it. If you were asked to run your community, oh, I do such a great job. But can you imagine having to balance a budget for your community and um, have enough activities to keep people involved, but not too many, and have enough schools, but don't let the schools, you know, interfere with traffic. And yet you still need emergency services and people want parks, but not a dog park. Where's the dog park? Then people complain about So if you were going to build a community, what kind of community and neighborhood would you build? I think many of us don't spend any time thinking about the responsibility we have as citizens to be involved, to be active, to become a part of building a healthy neighborhood. And what is it like to be your neighbor? Ask yourself that crazy question. Is it just a gift from heaven to have you as the neighbor? Do you bring stuff over when there's issues or problems? Can you talk about offense issue and and handle it and fix it? Do you have that ability? Because it's one thing to just sit there and complain about how we don't have any places to, you know, we have no growth. There's no growth in their city. There's no development in the city. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, I'm too busy working to do anything about it, right? We all are. That's probably why many cities and communities don't get any of the attention, but over and over, if you want to have the right to complain about your city, your neighborhood, your community, you better get involved. I believe a, a major part of being a human that lives on this earth today is you have a responsibility, even an obligation, to be involved. We can't even get people to vote, and yet people, everyone has thinks they have a say. But if you're not going to vote and you're not going to get involved, and if you haven't been to a community meeting – um. then really, what voice do you have? Well, I pay taxes. Well, great. Then get more involved and become a part of it. And also, as our earlier guest was talking about, um, make sure you're diversifying as well. You can easily build a neighborhood that does nothing but reflect you. But we might also want to build a neighborhood that reflects our highest values, our highest principles. So, seven very basic, quick needs that need to be in every neighborhood: safety. It's got to be there. You got to have physical safety, social, emotional. We have to be safe with one another. Financially, we have to be making enough money. We've got to trust each other. Do your interactions with your neighbors make them trust you? Do uh, also you have to feel appreciated? We need to recognize people that are doing great things. We need to feel respected. We should probably understand and, and be able to understand the diversity of religion and opinion and culture and politics and ethnicity in our country and in our communities. We need to learn to validate one another, listen and actually let people have their own ideas. We need to be encouraging and we need to be dedicated to our community, stand up for it, talk about it, share it, you know draw people back to the neighborhood. Anyway, it's our community, and if we're not doing something about it, no one is. So that's the Coach's Corner. Now we've got uh, one of my favorite segments is this interesting uh, little thing we do with McKenna Baus. We call it Baus in the House. McKenna is our producer and uh, social media extraordinaire. She also today is going to be talking to us about a pacemaker for your brain. Talk to me about this, McKenna.
6: Yeah. So you know how pacemakers for your heart, it, when it isn't functioning well, it sort of gives it this electrical yeah, zap
1: zapper to that helps get the it rhythm get going and again. Sink. Yeah.
6: And there's been some recent studies that they did um, that show the benefit of having electrodes placed on the brain um, that zap various areas when your memory isn't doing very well. And it improves memory. And it. they have used it um, and tested it with epilepsy patients. right. Because the seizures tend to sort of mess with the memory. You kind of
1: get locked, you get locked in a, like an electrical circuit. Yeah. And then I guess the pacemaker helps to change the circuitry.
6: Exactly. Um, And they also have a lot of hope that it can, will be able to with further testing benefit Alzheimer's patients, yeah. people with dementia. Parkinson's, and,
1: I think they already use it for people with Parkinson tremors.
6: Yeah, and then also people with traumatic brain injuries um, in order to help sort of stimulate the brain again. And so one of the cool things about how the study came to be is it came through this process called piggybacking. Now, already there's this process of placing electrodes in the brain to help people who have epilepsy, who suffer from seizures, um, and they'll have sort of zaps that help treat those seizures. And they started thinking, well... What would happen if we used this and tested memory along with it? Because they've looked at it before in terms of trying to use it to treat memory, and the results were really mixed. Wow! And there didn't seem to be a lot of progress in terms of the research. But what they've discovered is that the timing is key. By looking at the you know brain functioning of these uh, epilepsy patients, when their memory was doing well a zap would make it so their memory was 15 to 20 percent worse Hmm. but if they were able to time it specifically for when memory was functioning poorly and get it down really well their memory shot up and got better it got better and it's totally changed things because it's directing this research now in the sense of sort of smart yeah um
1: well my my father-in-law Was a cardiologist is a cardiologist put pacemakers in for years and they're very everyone accepts the idea. Mm -hmm. Right. We're just going to put a little device under the flap of under your shoulder blade and then we're going to put an electrode and just plug it right into the heart and everyone's good with it. Yeah, we're all fine with it. So why not the brain.
6: Exactly. I think some people maybe have some hesitation because the idea of like electroshock therapy and some of the negative associations with that. Um, And I think we're just a lot more nervous when it comes to the brain. brain. Just because not only is it, I mean, yes, we need our heart to live, but our brain, that makes up so much of who who we we are. are, And there's that fear of losing it. But, you know, they're finding that there are ways that they can move forward with this research and Luckily, it's going to help some of these people who suffer from memory be who they are longer.
1: And with more and more of an aging population and Alzheimer's on an all-time high Mm -hmm. and dementia related disorders, I mean, I'm sure it's like, okay, yeah, we got to turn up the volume on this one.
6: Yeah. And it's just great because here we are making real progress.
1: How cool is that? And I mean, I have seen it in Parkinson's patients where it does eliminate the tremors Mm -hmm. and but it's – the funny thing is, is it's not necessarily covered by your insurance yet because yeah. it isn't widely accepted enough. So – I had a friend that was responsible for marketing this brain surgery Mm -hmm. with a pacemaker for tremors to Parkinson's patients, which is like one of the hardest things to do is find them, then get them to want the surgery, then get them to find somebody in their area that can do it and then be willing to pay a hundred or whatever grand it would take.
6: It's a very niche group.
1: It is. But imagine the person that has the tremors or the seizures, the life that they can take back.
6: A huge benefit
1: unbelievable super cool Uh, that is uh, McKenna Baus with a little mind bender for us isn't it great and literally she'll bend your mind with just a little electrical impulse from a defibrillator Uh, we appreciate uh, thanks McKenna appreciate your time we will take a break hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show Friday edition done we'll be back with more fun more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger stick with us
0: The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Happy, happy Friday to you. Hope uh, hope you're having a great day and hope you also are, are getting ready for A wonderful weekend as well, maybe some time with friends or family, hanging out, sometimes just vegging, taking a break, for heaven's sakes. We got a great show for you today. Today we will, of course, be um, talking about the news and the headlines. We'll get to that in a minute. We also are going to talk about six elements of an effective apology. According to science, they have been researching apologies, and there are six things that uh, that you you could throw into a really good apology. And there's a couple that have to be there if you want to have an effective apology. Do they
3: address figuring out if you are at fault? No. You, we've already I, got to the point where – They assume that
1: you, oh. you are at fault. You did something. You know you did something. But you can't just give an apology like, I'm sorry you're so pathetic that you didn't understand what I said.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry you misunderstood when I asked you to take out the trash right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, loser. Yeah, you just see right there the minute you inject a derogatory term like loser. Or what about all those people that insult you and then just say,
1: "JK, JK, haha."
3: I think it's important yeah. though that there's a discussion establishing fault before you just launch into some sort of apology.
1: Well, but the funny thing is is if one were self-aware, yeah, one would know that they did something wrong. We, we, by the way, part of it is accepting responsibility. That's a major part. That's one of the two things that have to be in an apology if you want it to have any power.
2: You have to accept responsibility for it. Is there any sincerity in it when you are waiting for the, uh, the apology to come back to you? Like if you feel like you're both at fault yeah, yeah. and you're offering the, your apology but you're really waiting to hear theirs. Yeah. It, by the way, if you're offering your apology to get their apology –
1: then you might be you might be in a sticky wicket there. That's not that may not work because the reality of your apology is it's kind of it's just one way for now. Now you should apologize too, right? If you're guilty, you, both of us should do that. But your apology is about you apologizing to them, and the least important part is asking for their forgiveness. Hmm. Pretty important, really. Lesson. Asking, So will you forgive me? That of all the things they studied of the six points that they proposed, that was the least important part of the apology. There's other things like admitting you did something wrong, explaining why you did it, what happened. But notice, if all you did was explain it and not admit it or apologize for it or try to make restitution for it, then it doesn't matter that you've got a story as
3: to why it happened.
2: What's number one, hugging it out? Yeah, hug it out.
0: It
3: shouldn't it be maybe one last effort to try not to have to apologize just try to just establish the facts of the situation and
1: yeah no No? sorry yeah not not,
3: like, not even close that may be a lot of my problem
1: that, that is apparently a lot of your problem huh. and your marriage
3: i'm just this whole new realization this morning
1: oh it's mind blowing isn't it it's mind blowing okay we'll get to all of that fun straight ahead plus of course some empty news for you um you know, the empty news. It sounds like it's empty. No, it's Matt Townsend news. A man, by the way, gets served after hiding in a laundry pile. Mm. Can't hide in the laundry pile. That's the Nor first would you want
7: go. to. Yeah,
3: that's true. Well, unless it's like clean laundry.
2: Well, unless nice you're wanted for a warrant and well, you've got to get out. So, that. Let's yeah. just say you wouldn't want to hide in our laundry after what happened with one of my daughters the other morning. But... That's all I'm going to say. Wow. 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 That got dirty fast. The laundry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We
1: will
3: now go to the headlines with Terry South to find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Just two days after the Trump administration certified that Iran is abiding by the terms of the 2015 nuclear deal brokered by former President Barack Obama, President Trump claimed that Iran isn't actually complying with the spirit of things. Iran has not lived up to the spirit of the agreement, Trump said during a joint press conference Thursday with the Italian prime minister. Trump offered no evidence of Iran's failure to comply spiritually with the agreement, which calls for the country to roll back its nuclear programs in exchange for the reversal of sanctions. Nor did he explain what spiritual compliance entails. Yeah. Trump promised his administration would have more to say in the, quote, not too distant future.
1: <laughs> but the spiritual would imply that they're doing it Temporally, they're doing it physically. They're complying logistically, but the spirit, yeah. they're, but they're being rude while they're doing it. Yeah, maybe it.
3: they're doing it begrudgingly.
1: Yeah, maybe they need to have a little hug out, a like little my, apology My thing. apologies right. might be a little exactly.
3: out of spite. What's viewed even less favorably than United Airlines?
1: Less favorably than United Airlines? Yeah. Uh, North Korea.
3: According to public policy polling surveyed uh, released on Thursday, President Trump,
0: Oh wow! Really?
3: Yeah. So the poll found that while a whopping forty-seven percent of Americans negatively view the airline after their uh, last couple weeks of events with the uh, passenger they pulled off the the, uh, the airplane there, as we all remember the video, more than half of Americans fifty-two percent see President Trump unfavorably. Fifty-two. Fifty-two. So forty-seven percent see United Airlines unfavorably. Fifty-two percent. Wow. See the president. You better get on that. Yeah, work on that uh, public image there. Bill O'Reilly's payout as he leaves Fox News will be in the tens of millions of dollars. The Financial Times reports the payout will be $25 million. O'Reilly was let go Wednesday, mid-mounting pressure on the cable news channel over sexual harassment allegations. 21st Century Fox and O'Reilly are unable to comment on a payout. Two sources told CNN that O'Reilly recently signed a new contract, reportedly worth $25 million a year, and therefore will receive a payout equal to one year's payment. Wow. A good deal. If you and can get he'll it. get another gig.
1: Right. If he wants one.
3: He, he he said, you know, he recently said he may want to just give this up. He's getting tired of doing this every day. Oh, yeah. It's tough work.
1: Get to the Bahamas. Uh,
3: another development has federal prosecutors opening an investigation into Fox News, which involves an accuser of former uh, Fox News CEO Roger Ailes. So investigations will continue. Also, 21st Century Fox is trying to buy British news channel Sky News. And we'll have to undergo a review by UK regulators. And part of that review is to make sure that all aspects of your company are uh, on the, I guess, on the up and up. Th- there so there any outstanding lawsuits. 21st Century Fox doesn't want to have some sexual harassment situation yeah. happening in their other news division as they're trying to buy a news channel in another country. So Sky
2: News, to- that's the one that, that only airs on airplanes, right? Yeah. It's only in the yeah. air. You can pick it up only in an airplane. Sky News.
3: And finally, place your orders now, and by 2020, you can own a flying car. Why? A Slovakian company, Aeromobile, on Thursday, debuted its limited first edition flying car. There's videos online, Matt. Aeromobile. Mobile. If you want to look at, a
1: I'm looking card. it up right now.
3: Uh, Mon- at Monaco's, uh, they had an auto show in Monaco. They unveiled the car, announced it would start taking pre-orders. That will deliver in 2020. The car will sell between a four between 1.3 million and 1.6 million, according to the website TechCrunch. It transforms the car to car mode in less than three minutes.
1: Well, that seems like a long time. Yeah,
3: so as you're sitting there, you push a button, and, and door's folding, things folding Boy, it's folding a good-looking
1: car from the front, though.
3: Yeah. It has around, uh, let's we'll see here, 134 miles of driving, or 434 miles of driving range, which isn't bad. My 400 car, and what? 434. That's good. My car gets about that, so it's yeah. nothing extreme. It says uh, the flight range operation is 75% of its maximum speed. So it can go 434 driving to around 466 miles of flight. Wow. On a tank of gas or charge or however it's powered. Top ground speed for the car, car plane, is around 100 miles an hour. It can do around 224 miles an hour while gunning it during flight, says the report. Experts aren't predicting flying cars will take to the sky by storm anytime soon. For starters, anyone who wants to fly a car will need to have a pilot's license. You oh, leave, boy. Once you leave the ground, they get really concerned about you. Oh, you mean just, you. just
1: your traditional driver's license won't do
3: No. And then it says there's also the question of which traffic laws cars in the sky would have to abide by, as right now there aren't any laws for airplanes and flying cars and all that stuff. So it's not exactly legal to use a highway as a runway. Oh. So how would you take bummer. off? Bummer.
1: So you'd have to get to an airport.
3: Yeah, but would the airport just let you drive out there?
1: Well, I think if you honk a couple times... And oh. show them your airplane car card.
3: Uh-huh. Then they're like, oh, come on in. Oh, okay.
2: I believe you have to reach 88 miles per hour before you can actually launch into the air.
3: That would be time travel. Hmm. How fun
1: would that be, though, if you could just, you know, once you got on the freeway, you wouldn't want to do it during busy traffic times. No, but, I
3: mean, there's wings yeah. out.
1: And I yeah. mean, if it takes three minutes to get those wings out, eventually once they're out, <laughs> poof, you're up. Yeah. You're up.
3: Flying cars.
1: Boy, what's happening to us? Isn't it crazy? Because it seems like we already have enough trouble on the road. Yes. Um, it's, are we not creating problems by trying to now fly and be on the road? It's going to be that inner. We're really good in. in we're really good flying. Yep. And we're really good on the ground. It's kind of the transition. Well, plus it's you need to, to hire a problems. bunch
2: of air traffic controllers to monitor your
1: flights. Yeah. Like the DMV, it'll be it'll be kind of a mix between the DMV and, and, the, FAA. and the FAA. Yeah, so the
3: DMFAVA. There will be another government regulation, another government organization to uh, to yeah. further complement things or con- you know, conflict and cause problems but, in your life. You got to get another license, probably. Just, but what know. does the dad do when he's like, "Don't make me pull over"? I will land this airplane. Roll yeah. your
2: window <laughs> up. <laughs> Timmy's lips are flapping. And what if somebody gets carsick up there? <laughs> oof. Messy. Good Quick point. question. Would you rather have the ability to fly or travel through time? Fly. Fly. Really? I don't want
1: really? to mess up. I don't want to get into the yeah. whole time The space-time thing. Time continuum.
8: Yeah. You start causing it's paradoxes. A st- mm-hmm. It's a problem.
1: Yeah. It's all you need are two ducks.
3: Par- paradox, not Paradox.
1: Good stuff. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, six elements of an effective apology, the science behind apologizing. You're not going to want to miss this. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be able to apologize up next. Apologies are important tools in resolving conflict and repairing relationships. It's human nature to make mistakes, so why is it so hard to admit that we're wrong and initiate a good apology? Genuine apologies should show that we care about other people and are willing to take responsibility for our actions. Some new research has explored why it's so difficult to accept fault and how we can craft an effective and sincere apology. Here to talk to us about the research on the subject is Dr. Roy Lewicki. Roy, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Boy, nothing more universal than the apology, it seems like. And I love how much research you got out uh, out of this topic why? First of all, I guess first and foremost, um, why would you choose to start? Uh, you know, a researching about uh, apologies. What, what? What? Why was it so important to you?
8: Well, I think there were two things that were going on. At least the first was that um, that I've been interested for a long time in my research in in trust and repairing trust. So, how do you rebuild trust once it's been broken by some kind of an infraction? Um, And the second was that, you know, about a decade ago when we started seeing, you know, largely around the financial crisis and so forth, when we began to see CEOs and sports figures and a number of other people uh, apologizing for their actions um, on the front page of the daily newspaper, uh, began to say to myself, you know, some of these sound more authentic or more genuine or more sincere than others and we began to try to investigate what was it about some apologies that made them better or more effective than others. Oh, so that's, that's where, great. where we got started.
1: That's great, and it's it's so true. We've all heard an an inauthentic apology, or what sounded to us as inauthentic. We were joking about him earlier, something like, I'm sorry you didn't understand what I meant, <laughs> or like where we still place blame on the other person. Right. Um, and, and so I, I guess how did you come up with – your test, because you actually went in there thinking that certain things must, must drive a healthier apology, right? Because you had six elements you were testing.
8: Correct. We, we looked at previous research, and we also looked at some, some of my colleagues at other universities who were doing research on trust repair. Um, and we looked at the way that they had set up their experimental situations in order to uh, understand when apologies work better or, or not so well. And uh, after sort of taking apart this work, uh, as well as studying some of the apologies that were coming up in, in the newspaper, by, said by sports figures, CEOs, and others, we were able to break down um, how apologies were being put together into these six components.
1: Now, um, before we actually get into the components, you, one of the things I know that you also look at is, it, it, I guess it depends on why you're apologizing. Um, and and one is if, if it's to repair your image, that's going to come off differently yeah. than I guess uh, you know just a sincere apology where you've hurt someone.
8: Yes, I, th- I mean I think people uh, people apologize for multiple reasons. One is you recognize uh, that you have done something wrong or inappropriate. You've misspoken. Um, you've broken a you've, you've broken a promise. Um, you've violated someone's trust. Um, and the other is that you value the relationship with the other party and are noticing that um, that they are responding in ways that indicate that something has happened. So uh, for some of us, it's just a matter of, of face-saving and um, maintaining our own image. For others, it's that I sincerely uh, want to maintain a good relationship with you, and I recognize that I've done something wrong.
0: Hmm.
1: Is... Um when when you get into it, I mean, maybe actually, maybe the best way to start it is tell us what the six, uh, the six, you know, essential elements are of an apology.
8: As we as we teased it out, we we identified the, the following six components: uh, an expression of regret, uh, that is some kind of acknowledgement that I'm sorry um, or um, I'm aware something went wrong, an explanation of why it went wrong, what went wrong, or why it went wrong. Uh, An acknowledgement of responsibility, that is, it was my fault, Um, I said something wrong, I didn't keep my promise. Um, A declaration of repentance, Um, I won't do this again, I'll make it up to you. Um, An offer of repair, here's how I'm going to fix the damage that may have been done. And lastly, um, a request for forgiveness, which is, you know, please forgive me or please uh, don't take this as an indication of how much I value our relationship.
1: Wow. I mean, that, that is so thorough. To me, that's a very yeah. thorough list. And, yet, and then what's neat about your research we'll get into is some of it isn't even as necessary as other parts of it.
8: That's correct. That's correct. I mean, the first thing I think we discovered was that um, when we looked at apologies, that the more of those components were included in an apology, the more effective it was seen to be.
1: Oh really? So if you could get the the whole litany, the whole list in there with sincere with sincerity, then um, it, it was more effective. And as as you were only able to get a few parts in, it became less effective.
8: That's right. I would. I mean, I'd call it a shotgun apology, which is that you put all of the all of the components into the barrel. Um and with the with a hope that that the more of those components that you include the more likely the other party is to accept it and acknowledge it
1: yeah and I guess um because is it is it true that certain parts of that list either the expression or the explanation or the acknowledgement or the declaration are, are, do certain people need certain parts of that apology more than others need it
8: uh, I think that's that's hard to know um, I don't think we've gotten quite that that far yet I think for some people it's just the fact that you did make an effort to uh, to recognize that something went wrong and to um, and to say something that will uh, effectively try to mitigate it um, in other cases um, it's you know you you really don't have any sense of what the other side needs. And I think in those situations, um, more of the components might be more likely to be affected. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, if you don't know, I guess if you really know what they're hurt by is, you know, because they thought they made it so this couldn't happen, and maybe they need the explanation more. Um, that, interesting. Right. Yeah.
8: And, and, yeah, and um, you know, and and often what we don't do, I think, in in that situation is we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the person who, who received, uh, you know, who, who, who had been slighted, who, or who had received, um, you know, the offense. So we, we, we say things to protect ourselves without really understanding perhaps what the other party, what the other party needs.
0: Yeah.
1: So some pre-work to the apology goes a long way because then you might even be able to tailor these six points to exactly what they need.
8: Absolutely right. I mean, if you, if you understand, um, the, you know if you know the other party well um, and understand what their needs are that could be quite different than in a you know an casual relationship or one where you don't know them very well that that tailoring those might might work better in the first circumstance than
1: the second and how many times have you had an apology where someone said yeah sorry get over it move right. on but you know they don't even know what they're apologizing for
8: or or you know and and what we didn't do by the way is we didn't we only studied these in terms of the the wording components. Our next round of research, which we're beginning now, is to include the emotional components. That is the tone of voice, uh, the sincerity uh, with which it's communicated and and so forth, because uh, obviously we pick up a lot of messages. From the sincerity or uh, of the tone of voice and the emotionality, as well as just from the words themselves.
1: Oh, it's so true. Um, so, talk about the actual research you did and the study, because the study is—I mean, it's pretty—it's pretty inclusive.
8: Um, we we created um, a scenario uh, that had been used before, where a person um, made a mistake. Um, in this case, it was an accounting person who made a mistake uh in the way that they computed uh tax tax uh, obligations um and then apologized for it and put this in a business context in in the first study um, we we gathered data from a, bro- a broad base of uh, of of population there's some instruments out there by which you can put surveys online uh and people come in and respond and we structured it so that they read apologies um, based on the number of components that were included uh... and then rated the effectiveness uh... in the second case we did a large study with business undergraduate students um, using many of the same kinds of components uh... and tested some of the 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 additional issues that we had discovered in the first study so overall we have about eight hundred people who had responded to these uh... questionnaires in one format or another
1: did you Did you notice a difference um in the study between those that thought the person had kind of intentionally done it wrong versus those you know intentionally uh misdone the taxes um versus those that accidentally or out of ignorance had done it
8: um, yeah it's, we we did not as strongly as we had expressed uh, as we had expected we would find in in the first in, in, in one variation. Um, it was clear that the the mistake had been made because um, the the person essentially just didn't know what they were doing or had made a mistake, uh, a, an understandable mistake. In the second case, um, it was the person sort of outright lied um, that it was, and, you know, that the, the, the violation came because it was a real reflection on their own personal integrity. Um, the more, the closer we got to situations where somebody is doing something that's out of their integrity, out of their uh, personal integrity and, and out of their personal value systems, the, the less effective some of these components were. Um, so it's harder to apologize when, uh, for something when people see you as intentionally doing it um, for malicious reasons than if they just made a mistake.
1: Interesting. And which in my world of marriage and relationship kind of coaching, it's a natural thing for people to negatively interpret the actions of others. So they might actually over interpret negatively what you're doing. You know, you're doing it out of a lack of character because you're evil That's instead right. of just, you know, ignorant.
8: Or you're out to hurt me. You yeah. Know, or you're, you're at. Or you're at. You know, you're out to. You know. To, to do something intentionally against me. That's good. Um, and in close relationships, that's that's clearly a, a problem when a serious violation occurs.
1: Well, you are learning a lot then about trust. Your original goal, trust, and repairing trust. Let's uh, let's take a break, Roy, and come back and continue this discussion about the six elements of an effective apology. We'll get into those six elements. What needs to be there and get some real solutions, folks, so we can all learn to apologize more effectively. We'll take a break. More with uh, our great Dr. Ron Lewicki up next. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us right now is Roy J. Lewicki. He is a professor, uh, a lead scholar in a study on trust development and trust repair. He also, uh, um, Dr. Lewicki, is the author of 40 books, including textbooks on negotiation. He received many awards, including the Distinguished Educator Award from the Academy of Management and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Association of Conflict Management. He's the author of the book, uh, The Six Elements of an Effective Apology, According to Science. So we appreciate you. um, Actually, that's the article name. Uh, We appreciate you, Roy, being with us. Thank you again.
8: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
1: So the six elements that need to be in the apology are we need to express regret, explain what went wrong, uh, acknowledgement of responsibility, a declaration of repentance, offer of repair, and request for forgiveness – if, and you're saying, according to your research, Roy, if we use all six of these, it improves the likelihood that um, the apology will build trust, repair trust. Correct. Now, is there are there certain ones of these that are more important than others? So if we only can get a couple in there or three of them in there, are there certain ones that really matter the most?
8: Yes. I, we Based on the work we've done so far... The, the findings show that the most important component was an acknowledgement of responsibility. Uh, that is, if we try, if we said it's my fault, or I let this happen, or um, I made a mistake, um, that that is clearly the most important component. Many people try to uh, explain trust violations away by saying, um, you know, the the devil made me do it. Um, or, you know, I don't know how this happened, or this was somebody else's fault. So taking responsibility was without question the most important component. Uh, the second most important component was some kind of an offer re- of repair. Um, how, do, how can I repay you? How can I restore um, the damage? Um, is there something I can do to compensate you? How can I make this up to you? Um, even if that offer is rejected by the other, saying, oh, it's all right, or don't worry about it, or whatever, the, the expression that one offers to repair the vial, the, the damage done is, is was the second most important component.
1: Interesting. So people want to hear that you acknowledge you made it, and you own the, the mistake, and they want you to offer to repair it, which many times, I mean, a lot of people will just reject, don't worry about it. But, right. but you're saying just the offer itself makes a big deal, makes a big difference.
8: It does, and because again, it sort of takes responsibility. That is, I'm willing to put forth time, energy, whatever it may be, to fix the damage that may have been caused um, by this. And that, again, I think that's a, a component of taking res- responsibility, which the other tends to see in a very positive light.
1: Did you put these in an order um, as far as value, or were there just two front runners that need to be there, and the rest were the same?
8: No, we they, they were. Random. They were randomly included in, in these statements of apologies, and when we teased out um, which ones seemed to make the most difference when they were presented by themselves or when they were presented in groupings, um, these two came out to be the most significant.
1: That's so powerful. Um, it, because you would think a lot of people, because more people, it seems like, go to trying to explain what went wrong... But that may not suit anybody like I may care more to just know that you admit you did it. I don't want the explanation.
8: well, the explanation may be important if, in fact you were not you were not responsible so in other words, explaining yeah. if it was really was an accident um or something happened that was completely unpredictable, that in fact may be the case. But in a situation where it clearly was where the violation was under your control or in your scope of responsibility or had something to do with what you were doing, taking responsibility for it becomes very important
1: what uh, I, I assume this is universal to all human relations, not just a business relationship uh, would you Would you be able to take it that far
8: i I think that, um, there are there are other things that I have read um, and in some of them in the popular literature, some of them um, in in literature, like um, therapy therapeutic and counseling relationships, and so forth that seem to support um, just these principles but uh, i can 't sort of officially attest that that's that's true they they make a lot of common sense to us.
1: Can you tie it back to your original kind of area of study about? Creating trust, reducing conflict. What is it about acknowledging? What is it about offering to repair that actually rebuilds trust? I,
8: I think it, it gives the um, gives the the person whose trust has been violated, the, the victim, some sense that the other is willing to act in a different way um, and, and and reform, change their behavior, do things that will re- restore um, what what the trust relationship was previous to the violation. Uh, on the other hand, if that person doesn't follow through, um, you know, if, or if the same problem tends to occur or the words become hollow, um, then I think you, you've done more damage to trust um, than, than you may have beforehand. So we are looking at this sort of in an episode, so to speak, but uh, over the long term, uh, a person who does something wrong apologizes for it and then goes and does it again or repeatedly, uh, the words become very hollow and, and mm. insincere, and the other party really pays attention to that.
1: Is it better to not apologize? If you think you're going to have a recidivism issue, um, is it better to not apologize?
8: Um it's kind Boy, of, it, it's a weird it, it question. Might, but, it might be, but you better count on the fact that um, the other person's gonna, not going to stay in their relationship very long. Yeah,
1: they don't. If they don't trust you, they're going to relate to you differently without right. trust.
8: Correct. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I what, one of the things I've been going through my mind the last couple of weeks is the situation that United Airlines yeah itself in um, based on the, the initial comments of the CEO. Which suggested that getting his uh, aircrew to another destination was more important than uh, than treatment of passengers. That that just struck such a nerve uh, in people who fly frequently about about the attitude of the airlines that it will take, you know, it, it tremendous damage was done to that brand, um, and it's going to take a long time for that to come back.
1: There's that quote: uh, "You can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into."
8: That's correct. And you can't talk your way some, out of something that somebody caught on video and is <laughs> and, and all over Facebook for days.
1: That's and then correct. and then you misapologize. apologize I mean, that's a pretty good example of bad apology after bad apology after bad apology.
8: Right. Digging yourself in. Right. And I'm sure everyone who studies corporate crises and tries to help... CEOs avoid that, you know, has been has been taking notes
1: about what went wrong here. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, it, when we dissected it, it really was almost more about um, trying to explain what went wrong, why it went wrong, and why it was okay, instead of just acknowledging the responsibility and offering to make it better.
8: Ab- absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. You can go back and read the text of the CEO and others from the from the company about that issue. Isn't
1: that fun? How you know world is now lining up with your research, um, and I guess well, it, and, that, pro- and that's
8: and that's how it started. I mean, it's been very a great deal of fun to be able to walk in with the front page of a major newspaper into the classroom and say, "Let's talk about what just happened." How great! Um, because the, the uh, these are, as you as you pay attention, these occur every day in one way or another in the media.
1: Um, what. Give us some things that we should absolutely avoid doing then. What are some things we shouldn't do if we're looking to have a sincere apology? Are there obvious things, don't do this?
8: Um, yes. Uh, I think one is don't, um, don't, make it, don't make any statement an insincere statement. Um, don't, don't indicate that you're only mouthing the words but that you really don't believe it. Uh, second you you may in fact be better off um, staying silent if you can't construct uh, an apology that's that's heartfelt that um, you that you you actually may be better off saying nothing under some circumstances' yeah. than trying uh, to verbalize it and just hope that it, things pass over or or go away um, but i think you know and the last thing of course is don't start um, coming up with ever, any or every excuse you can think of for why it was not your fault, why you're not responsible, why you don't care about the damage that happened to mm. the other party. Um, that's just going to make things worse.
1: Did you notice anything on time, the time it takes to forgive, the time it takes to apologize? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking you don't want to rush an apology either.
8: No, but I, I think that you do want to initiate action as soon as possible after... Um, you're aware that something has gone wrong, yeah. And the other person is is not responding. The longer you wait, uh, the more it appears as though you, you know, whatever does eventually happen, came about because of because of other kinds of reasons and pressures. So uh, it's pretty clear apologies that occur soon after the violation are much are much more effective than those where you wait a long time for it to happen. Mm.
1: Good stuff. Of your six points, um, what, is there one of them that that really we can leave out?
8: I think ask, from, from the work we did, asking for forgiveness um, is probably the one you can, you, if you had to, that you could leave out. I think if you did the other five um, and then waited for the other party's response— um, they will let you know whether they're going to forgive you or not, or pass it over, or see it as a uh, an incidental mistake, or, or not a major problem. So that one, I think, if you had to, you can you can leave it out because you really, even in asking for it, you don't know whether the other party is going to give it or not. It's the the control of the relationship is now in the hands of the victim, so to speak, um, and what happens next is is pretty much determined by them and not by anything you can say or do.
1: Yeah. What, what advice would you give to the victim um, as they're listening to an apology to maybe um, process it and, and, and be able to move on and, and extend trust if they
8: can? Pay attention to um, whether the other is coming across sincerely. Uh, pay attention to whether they've taken responsibility for whatever has happened pay attention to whether they have offered to help you or fix the damage that may have um, been created, uh, and that they're willing to um, follow through on whatever commitments they make as as a result of that conversation. If those things occur... Um, trust repair is much more likely to happen.
1: Good stuff. Roy J. Lewicki, thank you so much for your wonderful uh, research. Keep it up. I love, uh, I love learning about what you're talking about. Uh, Roy J. Lewicki, again, you can find an article um, about uh, the six elements of an effective apology according to science. We'll post it on our at Dr. Matt show, our uh, tweet, Twitter handle, at Dr. Matt show. Uh, Check it out there. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on Rebuilding Trust. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the
8: world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
1: Welcome back, my friends. And uh, when you think about apologies... It's, for some, it's, it's one of the hardest things ever. It, you, you have to be very vulnerable um, to be able to offer that apology. W- when I look at it with the clients I work with, this, this concept of building trust demands two things, right? I've got to trust that you have character, that you have integrity, um, and I've got to trust that you have competency, that you know what you're doing. And as we just learned from uh, Dr. Lewicki, it may very well be that many people have the character to apologize. They just don't know how. They just don't have the skills to do it. And you would think you would not need skills to do it, except when Dr. Lewicki comes in and gives us, that. There's, teaches us there's six key elements to an effective apology based on research. Wouldn't it be important to know those points? I mean, wouldn't that make sense that, boy, we really ought to, We really ought to understand those points, for heaven's sakes. But the funny thing is, where do you get that information? Did mom teach you the six key points to an effective apology? Now, first, honey, make sure that you, you know, acknowledge responsibility for it. Express regret. Express it. You got to regret. I'm sorry I did this. Explain why. Acknowledge some of the responsibility. Declare uh, that you're sorry for it. Repent. Offer a repair. Request forgiveness I mean, we didn't learn these things, so one of the reasons we do the show and um i I do this coaching and all of this these skill tools is where do you learn it if you didn't learn it we've got to be doing some more learning and growing the most important relationships in your life are going to need apologies and Um, we've got to figure out ways to, to learn how to do it. And then if you've lived a history with somebody where we don't know how to apologize and we've never been able to do it well, how do you get back into the groove and apologize? We've got to figure out a way together to make it safe. And one of the fastest ways I've ever seen to do that is go admit you have a problem and go get help. What if you took a class or just watched a video together on how to effectively apologize? And sat down and said, let's learn how to do this. And both of you give the benefit of the doubt. Neither of us have known how to do this in the marriage. Let's learn how to do it and make it safe for each other. And um, another powerful thing I thought was a great lesson for me, a learning for me from Dr. Lewicki was this idea of acknowledging your responsibility. We, I think, live in a culture, a day and a time when it's so easy to just abdicate responsibility, to just give it up. You know, I can now blame Trump for the country. I can blame the Republicans for whatever, the Democrats for this. I can blame North Korea for, you know, global instability. We can blame everybody. We can blame our, our, you know, our schools for not educating our kids. We can blame the neighbor for, you know, distracting my child when they were driving and causing the accident. In reality, are you very good at acknowledging and taking responsibility? Do you own your own life? Do you own your own mistakes? Do you own your own marital issues? Or do you just keep passing them over to others? Because in the end, pass them all you want. But if you're not getting good at acknowledging it and owning your own stuff, then guess what? You can't derive the benefits of it then. If you acknowledge no responsibility for anything uh, of your marriage and your life then you don't deserve any of the blessings of it either. You can't have it both ways. If you're responsible to make it beautiful, then you're also responsible for making it ugly at times. And um, we we need the skills. So a little coaching advice for all of us. Let's start looking for the help we need. Even if you just go Google, go on YouTube and look up Matt Townsend, I have 248-minute videos on a million different topics. Uh, that I do on television every single week. I guarantee you apologizing will be on there once or twice, and I'm going to do another one in another few weeks. But let's learn the skills, for heaven's sakes. Let's learn it. And let's start taking back our relationships one apology at a time. Good stuff. Coaching Corner closed. Done. The MT News Team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Now to... (laughs) Now to empty news. First on the scene, fifth on the facts. Um, Here's some crazy news stories we always like to do. Empty news, Um, maybe some of the news you didn't even know you needed to know. A Connecticut man who police say initiated a game of hide-and-seek Thursday night to evade officers who were seeking to serve him with several warrants. The man was arrested after officers said they found him hiding under a pile of laundry in an apartment building. Ew. At 8.27, police said they arrived at the apartment of Brent Ramos, 41, to serve him with five court-issued warrants on charges of second-degree failure to appear. Before the police could arrest Ramos, officers said he fled on foot from his apartment to a vacant apartment on a higher floor. Police said they found Ramos hiding in a crawl space under a laundry pile, and they arrested him.
2: You know how they really found him? How? Because his kids must have been around and gotten in the hiding place with him. Kids are notorious for giving up the best hiding places. They can't
1: find us, Dad. They can't find Get out of here, Stacy. Oh, you're going to give me away, Stacy. So he went up to another apartment and climbed in someone else's laundry pile. Ew. I mean, I get hiding in your own laundry. I mean, who hasn't done that? <laughs> but hiding in someone else's laundry? Not Good. Anyway, they got him. It didn't help, did it? Also, a man hospitalized after a cannon explosion. An Ohio man is still in the hospital after being seriously injured from a cannon explosion. Deputies say the group of people were shooting golf balls out of the cannon when the accident happened. They say when the first shot uh, the first shot only went about three feet, they doubled the amount of gunpowder for the next shot. That's, I mean, that's the formula, right? Oh, yeah. So if the first ball only went three feet and you want it to go 50 feet, you need to just
2: pack Yeah, that's cannon. just simple
1: mathematics no, right yeah. there. I mean, totally. The victim suffered an injury to his lower leg when the next uh, shot caused the cannon to explode. The sheriff's department says there were no injuries, but the cannon exploded. A metal piece of it, and a metal piece of the cannon flew 500 to 800 yards into the roof of another
2: home. I don't know about you, but I would love to be at a point in my life where I'm that bored that I'll shoot golf balls out of a cannon.
1: Yeah. Wouldn't that be a good life? Oh. Don't you wonder where the ball ended up?
2: <laughs> Probably on the green.
1: Yeah. It's a hole-in-one. No way. Totally landed on the green. Uh, police impersonator pulls over an officer and now needs a real lawyer. Authorities say a man packing a blue light and a BB gun... Pulled over a nondescript car on Interstate 95. Ready to play traffic cop again, is what he was doing. Bad move, however. The driver he pulled over is a real police detective. Busted. The police report shows 46 year old Pacheco Bustamante was arrested Friday morning on felony charges of impersonating a Florida police officer. It says Bustamante was driving a Ford Crown Vic, they call it in police jargon. Is that a Ford Crown Vic? Similar to uh, uh, many police vehicles, when he approached the detective's unmarked car and activated a siren, the detective pulled onto the highway shoulder, then arrested Bustamante when it became clear he's no officer. The report says Bustamante told police he had done this before. Busted! Bustamante in Spanish means busted.
2: (laughs) Is that a fact? No. Oh. Uh,
1: Bustamante... Is now, um, he's under arrest. But you know what? Now he can play jailer. Yeah. Now he can play parole officer. Mm.
2: Now he can play a lot of new roles for Mr. Bustamante. So he loves acting. This guy's a great actor. And they've just blessed him yeah. with the role of a lifetime. Yeah. Now,
1: or inmate, at least, inmate number <laughs>
2: 7423. The role of a five
1: to tenner. Plus he can now be in charge of the entire acting corps in the, in the pen. That's fun, getting a bunch of, uh, you know, felons to do the the acting.
2: But I don't envy, you know, the choices that come with casting a show. (laughs) It's so difficult. So difficult. Can you imagine? Larry, okay, no, no, no,
1: no, no, no. Put the shank down. Put the shank down. We're just going to go do, we're going to do our lines today.
2: I don't know if I should go with Billy Bob (laughs) or Jake the Snake. Go
1: with Jake the Snake. Sounds like a great actor. That's the Empty News segment of the Matt Townsend Show. We will take a break. We'll be back next hour. More fun and excitement. Stick with us.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at DrMattShow. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> Happy Friday to you. Oh, it's such a good day. Friday is the day you get ready for Saturday. And then Saturday is the day you get ready for Sunday. There's a whole song about it.
2: I won't and break we it. we call it the get the work done day. Friday? Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. It's the day you
1: get ready for Sunday. It's where you iron your clothes. You go do your shopping so you can keep the Sabbath day holy. Right? So Friday is so you can keep the Saturday holy.
2: Mm, it's always so depressing when you realize it's Saturday night at 10 o'clock that you need to go to the store to pick something up. Oh, we do it every Saturday night. We go on a little date night,
1: and then the next thing we know, we're at the store, and then we see 500 people.
2: Yeah, and you're already in your pajamas at that point. You're ready to lay down,
1: relax. So Honey, can you just run and pick us up a roast? (laughs) sure i'll get right on that so uh because it's friday um and it's this is the last hour of the matt townsend show boy have we got a treat for you our own jeffrey liam simpson will be taking over in a few minutes and doing a little uh media madness because we're not revealing the title we we, we're not going to reveal the title but soon jeff will be taking over the entire hour, last hour of the Matt Townsend show to talk movies, media, mystery meets and other things.
2: Wow. Now I got to do something about mystery meets. Yeah. Although we already have something. We have a great thing about it. This is just a good way for you to
1: duck out. It's early a great way a for me to duck out. But really what it more is, because it's not I'm not going to I'll be sitting here, is it's a chance for you to talk movies and media, which you're so good at and you love doing. And I think it's a perfect segue for the weekend because then everyone can start gearing up into the movies they need to go see or the Netflix
2: they need to flick. <laughs> I just told you about one of them that you have not seen, and I also have not seen The Founder with Michael Keaton. I, I, will, I think I'm going to watch that this week. Are you going to do weekend. it while you eat McDonald's? McDonald's absolutely. Mm. You know,
1: a, an interesting little truth that we can talk about if we have any time. I haven't had uh, a caffeinated beverage or a soda for about four days now. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all day. I, so ever since I got sick, I've decided I'm going to drink more water. And I drink a lot of water. And every once in a while, I still am tempted to go get a soda.
3: Are you tracking how much water? Yeah. How much?
1: I'm drinking about 90 ounces of water a day. Oh, nice. For some reason, I'm using the restroom
2: about 500 ounces. I don't understand. We talked about this, too. I'm kind of going the other way, where I'm starting to consume more soda. Are you? So we're evening out, really. That's the balance of the Matt Townsend show. Um,
1: So... That's what I'm going to be doing all weekend is just drinking water, if you were wondering. We will uh, – today we're going to talk uh, movies with Jeff is going to take over and handle all that fun. Plus, of course, visiting our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. You're not going to want to miss that. Also, we'll have a hero of the day plus some uh, some more headlines. Have you ever heard of a house shaker? It's hmm. a machine that shakes a house for some odd reason. A stereo? No. Oh. Uh, a man from China, that not had a house. It well, it depends on the stereo. A bu- he's a it's a building shaker.
3: If you have some big speakers, my friend used to have now speakers in his true. car, and he pull them out of his car, and they're like 15 inches, oh, huge. Yeah. And he go put them in the basement just to annoy his dad.
2: Does he? Ha- does it have anything to do with a religious movement? No, nope. it's okay. not. But we'll talk. We'll talk building shaker mm. at the
1: end of the show as well. So stick with us for all of that fun. But first. To the headlines with Terry South.
3: Terry, what is going on that we should be paying attention to? Good news for someone, not so much good news for others. What? Yeah, Arkansas carried (laughs) out its first first execution in more than a decade after the Supreme Court turned down an inmate's plea to stay his lethal injection. Yeah. It seems like somebody in Arkansas is really eager to get some executions taken care of before the end of the month. How come everybody
1: else got theirs? passed on but to this guy
3: this guy didn't have a, a good argument i okay. believe 51 year old Lundell lee was pronounced dead at 11 56 p.m thursday he was sentenced to death for the 1993 killing of his neighbor he was one of eight inmates scheduled to die this month as, a, as authorities rush to use lethal injection drugs that expire on april 30th two more inmates are due to be executed monday another on april 27th one other inmate has been granted a stay Hmm. So the scoreboard, I don't know anymore. It's all confusing. We'll see where that goes. When members of Congress return to Washington next week after their long spring recess, both parties plan to focus on passing a spending bill to keep the federal government running past April 28th. When Congress returns, President Trump wants the House Republicans to take up the American Health Care Act once again with the new amendment, so he will be able to point to a concrete accomplishment for his first 100 days in office. His 100th day is April 29th. Really? Congress usually cannot take on two big things at once, the New York Times says. Five days to pass a spending bill, the Washington Post adds, is a tight timeline under the most generous of circumstances that would be nearly impossible to meet if House leaders also try to force a vote on the repeal legislation.
0: Hmm, that's a
3: lot of work. They can barely in get one, one thing done at a time. Now they're going to try to get two,
1: two major
7: things done.
3: Things. White House Budget Director Mark Mulvaney tossed in another wrench into the whole situation, saying the spending bill has to include some initial funding for Trump's border wall. And that the Democrats have to play ball.
1: Did they all just like,
3: play ball? Probably. That's how they've been reacting to most of the things.
1: What about Russia. What about them? I don't know. We just haven't talked about them much. They'll pop up in the middle (laughs) of the week
3: just to keep things interesting. I
1: guarantee it.
3: A court in an Italian town has ruled that excessive cell phone use has caused an executive to develop a brain tumor and awarded him a state-funded pension. The Guardian reports the potential landmark ruling was made April 11th, but was released to the public Thursday. It's subject to appeal. The 57-year-old Roberto Romeo, who has a benign tumor, testified that his work obligations meant that he had to use a cell phone for nearly four hours every day for 15 years. Romeo said that he actually felt the tumor develop and that he can no longer hear anything because doctors had to remove his acoustic nerve. Romeo's lawyer said for the first time in the world, a court has recognized a causal link between inappropriate use of a mobile phone and a brain tumor. Oh, wow. Scientific studies so far have remained inconclusive on the risk of cancer and cell phone use. But according to that court, there's a cause and effect going
1: on. Oh, boy. We're going to hear, I think we're going to hear stories.
3: Yeah. We'll you're holding electronics to your head how could that are you not? transmitting waves.
1: And well, and you all, how, if, if you've ever held a phone to your head and it got hot and warm, you already know
3: something's going on there. You're fired. You're fired. Yeah. And finally, yeah. a packet of 1998 McDonald's Szechuan sauce has sold for $14,700 on eBay. Yuck. The strange background, McDonald's put out the dipping sauce in that year as a publicity tie-in for the Disney movie Mulan. (laughs) And it received a giant nostalgic push when the characters on a TV show, Rick and Morty, uh, pined for it in a recent episode. They walked around wanting the McDonald's Szechuan sauce from 1998.
1: Oh, sure. Who wouldn't want that?
3: That led to a viral campaign for McDonald's to bring it back, complete with multiple change.org petitions. (laughs) The company has hinted that it might do so, and hopefully fans will have noted that the uh, remake of Mulan is in the work for next year, but eBay sale is the strangest component yet. Uh, the guy says, I bought, it, uh, I bought a really old car while cleaning it. I found the packet inside. After watching the recent episode of Rick and Morty, I went online to see if it was worth anything. Turns out it was. Also, this comes with a packet of wasabi sauce as well. <laughs>
7: Well,
1: you got to have both. You don't just want, you know, Szechuan. No
3: no word yet on the identity of the buyer or plans for the sauce, but the uh, Daily Dot website is issuing a challenge. The character Rick would definitely eat this stuff, so how about it? New owner of the rare McDonald's Mulan dipping sauce. Are you going to eat this? This thing is, what, 1998? No. It's just a packet, like a ketchup packet, but it's full of the special...
1: Jeff, when you bought your new... When you bought your car, uh, your used new car... Didn't it have – didn't you find a mustard packet that was like from 2010?
2: <laughs> no, but I actually did find salt and pepper packets when I pulled down the uh, the sunglass holder. Yes. Oh, is that where she would stack her packets? Yeah. You she sh- must have had diabetes or something.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Boy, the weird thing – because I'm about to turn my car in. Boy, I can only imagine what's going to be underneath that seat. I know I've got a fry that's easily from eight years ago.
3: Right. Would you eat it?
2: How
1: much is on the table here? No, I'm just... I wouldn't eat it because I'm hungry. I, clean, but I would eat clean? it
2: for some cash. For I think, sure. I think legally it's considered a weapon now because it's so sharp. <laughs> mm. The neat thing about it, it looks as good as it was on day one. Of course. That's how well preserved it is. Now, if we, could, if we can all say that about our wives, then we're in a good place. What? You mean if they could say it about you? No, if we could say, "You look, honey, you look just as good as you the can, first day I met you. You can say that. I know. I'm saying if we all could do that, we'd all be in a great place.
3: Couldn't you just say you look well-preserved?
2: <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you look sharp. You look uh, uh, sharp <laughs> as an old French fry. It's an old French fry
1: under my seat. Jeffrey, you're going to get in trouble. Luckily, your no, wife won't these, listen to this show.
2: These are all good things. I'm saying I have that. Wouldn't it be great if everybody had that? If everybody on earth could say that, yeah. Yeah. But, but again, that they could say that about it doesn't have to be your wife it could be your kids could say it about you they wouldn't see they watch peppa pig and the dad on peppa pig is always he's fat and so they're always talking about my big belly he's a fat Peppa. daddy has a big belly (laughs) and then i hang my head in shame
1: isn't it sad Hmm. that's i feel bad
2: see what cartoons do this is what you need to address on your media show jeffrey And they start talking in a British accent, or at least with British inflections. So they're pigs talking with British accents or inflections. No, no, no. I'm saying my daughters will talk to me with British inflections. I didn't know they
1: were bilingual. That's great. Hey, uh, any other news, Terry, that we should be worried about?
3: Science has apparently decided they've figured out why shoelaces come untied.
1: Well, really?
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Hold on. Well, you didn't tie them. Right. Well,
3: you tie the shoe. It's a a satisfactory knot. It looks tight and everything's secure. Okay. So, what would they come up with? It comes untied. It just says science has finally answered the burning question asked by people like this author who wear sneakers. Why do the shoelaces come untied when you run or walk around in them for a period of time?
1: Well, if you double knot, they don't.
3: Well, that's my solution. I always double knot everything. It says, Mechanical engineers from UC Berkeley studied the problem in a series of experiments that involved filming one of their colleagues with a slow motion camera as she ran on a treadmill. They discovered the dynamic forces acting upon laces while we jog or walk are a bit like the invisible hand, invisible hand undoing the knot. Hold on. It is as if physics is punking us with every step.
1: So physics... Is And the movement of the laces are – it's as if there's a magical hand. So science's explanation is it's as if there's a magical hand
2: unla- unlacing yeah. our huh. – Yeah. What but do science, scientists don't believe in
3: magic. Well, it's not magic. They're saying it's like it's magic. It's as if
2: it's a the magical force,
3: hand. It's mm-hmm. the forces of physics at hand, the forces that cause this not – are not from a person pulling on the free end, but from the inertial for- forces of the leg swinging back and forth while the knot is loosened from the shoe repeatedly striking the ground. This huh. Study co author Kristen Gregg. She was also the research subject who laced up her minimalist running shoes for the treadmill run. Wow. Says when you talk about knotted structures, if you can start to understand the shoelace, then you can apply it to other things like DNA or microstructures that fail under dynamic forces. So what they're saying is they can better understand how DNA works from your shoelaces.
1: Is that why some That's people are point. just they, – they seem like they've just totally come unwound because their DNA – because of the forces of walking, some people just unwind and then they just start falling apart and their body starts falling apart and then they die.
3: Sure. There's probably something wrong in there. That's the doctor in me.
2: I'm just going to get the new uh, self-lacing shoes, and then I don't have to worry about any of this. Well, I love your Velcro ones. Those are great. Those
1: are – I mean, boy, I did not – I did, not, I did not know we needed a study so for this. So here's
3: how the shoelace knots come undone okay. according to the paper. When you run, your foot hits the ground with a force seven times harder than the force of gravity alone. All that impact makes the knot in your shoelace to stretch and then relax with the action of the swinging and pulling of your leg – I would also toss in there, when you hit the ground, your foot spreads out a little bit.
1: Yeah, you got foot spread.
3: You you got to factor the foot spread. In other words, the very action you lace up uh, for also conspires to untie the shoes. The researchers found these forces could lead to the failure of the knot in just a few strides. Of course, we don't all have to retie our shoes every three steps. The researchers found that different knot-tying techniques, types of laces, and level of knot tightness all factor into how long it takes the shoelace to come undone. A really tight double knot usually gets me through a run, for example, the author says.
1: Yeah. Uh, plus, a lot of times these shoes are being tied by little tiny hands that don't have the grip strength. Right. Which is why your child needs you to retie their shoes 20 times.
3: Or just get them Velcro. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or duct tape.
3: Or duct tape, yeah. Yeah. It's not that hard. So you've learned something today, Matt. That's why I, your I've shoe learned comes a lot. That's untied. fantastic.
1: I, just double knot is the rule. Double knot or wear flip-flops. Get over
3: it. It also depends on my length of trip. If I'm just going to go real quick and come back, just the single knot. Yeah, that's good. No crazy. No Get double.
1: some slip-ons. Yeah. I like just slip-ons when I'm running errands. Oh, good times, folks. We're going to take a break. You know, when we return, Jeff Simpson and Rod Gustafson will uh, be... Uh, From Parent Previews, by the way. Rod works with Parent Previews. We'll be talking about the newest home video release and tackling the subject of movies based on true stories. You're not going to want to miss it. Stick with us. Jeff Simpson and the movies up next.
2: what that music means it means it's friday and we're speaking with our good friend Rod Gustafson from parentpreviews.com and he's here today to talk to us about a couple of uh, releases on home video which is an interesting term we had a discussion over whether you should still call it home video but new movies that are out on dvd and blu-ray that uh, are based on a true story and we've we've talked about this before on the show do you know this question of do audience members care how many creative liberties are taken in making these films. And uh, it's an interesting topic. There is an educational aspect that I want to get into with you, Rod. So first of all, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. It's really interesting because for a lot of people, this may be the only exposure that they get to a person or a subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and so the two films in question today are Lion and the film Hidden Figures which uh, was up, both of which were up for a, a ton of awards at the Oscars this last year. And both are unusual because both of them got a full A
9: grade, not even an A minus, from us. Parent previews and and we're we're notoriously uh, difficult to get the. You don't from. just throw around that A <laughs> no, grade willy nilly. No, we really really don't. We're really looking for movies that are going to give families not
2: only an entertaining experience but a life changing
9: experience.
2: And I'm interested to hear about these because I've actually. I haven't seen either one of these films.
9: Oh, ah, okay.
2: Wow. So give us, Jeff Simpson, give us, a... <laughs> I'm shocked. You get to movies earlier than I do. Quite often. <laughs> so, uh, Give us a short recap of of both of these movies or each of these movies, and then let 's get a little deeper into the true story aspect of it, mm-hmm. and you know whether or not people are going to care if the filmmakers took certain creative liberties in making these movies
9: yeah, yeah. so let 's start with hidden figures, hidden figures absolutely a tremendous movie it 's a period film takes place it well opens in the late 1950s and this is the story um, during the early days of the space race. And when the United States was just doing everything they could to try and catch up with what was happening with the Soviets... And uh, they, of course, computers really didn't exist back then. There were some very primitive ones, but they used to look for human computers, people who were astoundingly good at very difficult mathematics uh, like calculus and all of those things that I probably can't even spell. (laughs) And so typically they hired white guys to do that work. Well, they ran out of white guys, so then they started looking for gasp women. (laughs) They ran out of women, and then they started looking for double gasp black women. And so Hidden Figures is a story about some of those African-American women that were working at the Langley base in Virginia during the late 1950s and early 1960s. Now, the film focuses on three of these women, Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson were the, those are the names of these three women. And they, um, I've got a computer friend, he's a developer, and as soon as I, as soon as I mentioned uh, their names, um, I I think it was mary jackson if i remember right uh he immediately knew who she was because being a pioneer in computers all three of these women have made huge contributions far beyond just being quick at math to both computers and to engineering as well so tremendous story and of course these were in the days when you know black women could i mean the opening scene they're driving to work and they get pulled over by a white cop who starts questioning where are you ladies going right. and then they're telling them what they do. And of course, he's like, just incredulous, should I even believe you? Yeah. So that's kind of the thing they were. One of the great scenes in this movie, Alan Shepard, and and this is what we'll get into in a minute about f- fact versus reality, or fiction versus fact. Alan Shepard, before he launches, he picks up the phone and he wants to talk to, I think it was Katherine Johnson, wants to talk and make sure that Catherine had approved the mathematics for his flight. And I'm thinking, no, did that really happen? I did the research. It really happened. Wow. I mean, that
2: is the level that these women were at. So, because there are certain movies that you watch that are based on a true story, and you're thinking to yourself, how is it that I'm not hearing about this until now? It seems like there are certain films... Uh, where the subject uh, can't be mm-hmm. released until years later because of, you know, confidentiality and, you know, so is this one of those films? No. I it, I mean, this
9: is a public domain story. They work for a government agency. It's crazy I, that we haven't I, heard about it, it until now. And, you know, Jeff, I, I think that so frequently and glad I'm not the only person that doesn't go through that. Like, why, who? Why didn't I option this yeah. story? Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I have no
2: idea and what a tremendous story it is. As far as you know, is there any... Any creative liberties that were taken to make it more dramatic or to make it more emotional that maybe, you know. Things weren't as factual as they presented them. Yeah,
9: um, I uh, some of the creative liberties. So Kevin Costner, for instance, plays a um, he plays a department head, and he plays one of these guys that I can't I could care less if you're black, white, green, or purple. Just get the job done. We need to get these guys up into space. You know, he's that yeah. kind of character. And from what I understand, he's a a composition of a number of characters. And there's a few other uh, players in this movie as well that. Play composite characters compositing characters is a very popular thing to do in movies because if you look at a movie script one hundred and twenty double space pages roughly for a one hundred and twenty minute movie it 's about a minute per page, and then you look at a novel or a book i mean in this case it wouldn't be a novel there there is a book i can't sorry i can't remember if it's called hidden figures or not i don 't think it is but if you look at a book that the story would be based on it'd probably be three four hundred pages so there're always needs to be simplification that takes place in, in adapting a book to a movie and so often compositing characters is one of the main
7: ways
2: So sometimes I wish that uh, some of these Marvel movies would composite some of these characters so you oh, don't yes. have 30 superheroes on the screen at the same time, you Agre- know? I-, I couldn't agree with you more, <laughs> yes absolutely. Okay, so that one's Hidden Figures tell us about the other one, Lion. So the other movie, Lion, another
9: fantastic true story that's so fantastic, you think. Can this actually be true? And this is a story about a young boy who uh, lives in India with his mom and with in the movie with his brother, And in another case of compositing characters. There were more kids in the family in reality. His brother is a little older than him. Like this little tyke is like five years old, and his brother it looks like he's about 11 or 12. And uh, his brother goes out one night looking for work. And uh, just they pick up whatever odd jobs they can. They live in a very poor environment. And so he follows him to work and his brother very reluctantly lets him come. Well, they get to the train station and his brother tells him, lie down on a bench, get some sleep because this little guy's falling asleep. It's the middle of the night. And he says, I will come back and get you. Well, the boy wakes up and it's morning and his brother hasn't come back. And where is his brother? So he gets on a train car that's there looking for his brother. Well, the train starts moving and he travels umpteen miles across, sorry, across India and uh, eventually winds up in Calcutta, winds up on the streets of Calcutta. And of course, a lost child on the streets of a North American city probably sticks out, but not in Calcutta. They're, the streets are full of them. And so, miraculously, eventually gets taken to an orphanage, and he eventually gets um, adopted by a couple of uh, a couple in Australia, and he goes to Australia. But as he as he grows older uh, into his twenties, he just can't help but think his mother is still looking for him. And so, of course, uh, not a huge spoiler here, but there's going to be a fantastic reunion at the end of this movie.
2: That sounds like every parent's worst oh, nightmare. Yes, yeah, and every oh, child and every child's worst oh, yeah. nightmare. Worst nightmare as well. Talk about emotional scarring we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So any any creative liberties that you could see that were taken here— yeah.
9: Well, again, compositing of characters and those types of things. Now, I, I should have brought my wife with me today, Jeff, because she just finished <laughs> reading the book. But she was talking about some of the some of the other story elements. Where, of course, the book has got more detail, and a lot of it is simplified. And uh, and some of the things w- w- you can kind of tell when you watch a movie if you want to have your little um, is this real or is this not real, think about would it be possible for this to be recorded? Would somebody have actually known this would happen to a five-year-old and would he remember to relay these things? And and so some of the things like the dangers that he's in on the streets of Calcutta, there's a, a couple of specific moments that imply perhaps that there's a child trafficker that that is now feeding him lunch and those types of things. And so those things, uh, you know, are are not necessarily didn't happen as they're depicted in the movie but in the movie we have an expectation of we want this dramatic story arc and we want those things to to be able to take place and so often when you know creative license, I think is valid when you are setting a location in an environment, and maybe you don't have specifics of what happened, but you still have a pretty. It, it's a pretty logical assumption to think that there would be child traffickers on the streets of Calcutta. Yeah, you know, so that's not far fetched. And so, uh, liberties like that, I think, are are valid things to do, just to teach us about this is this is what life yeah. is like.
2: It seems like it's a very fine line to tread because we we mentioned earlier that for a lot of people, this may be their only exposure to Mm -hmm. this topic. Mm -hmm. So if we're hoping to educate people – Through, you know, the use of a film. Mm -hmm. Is it appropriate, in your opinion, to take these creative liberties? Is that cheapening the experience or is that misleading the audience member in any way? What what does that do to the overall educational experience aspect of this
9: topic? Well, this takes me back to high school where I would watch the movie instead of read the book and I'd fail my essay. And that is because, of course, there are many nuances missing that are very valuable to understanding the story. I really feel like the movie, and, and now I'm being hypocritical saying this because I don't get much time to read. My wife does more of that. But the movie, if you really want to use the movie well, as an educational experience with your family. So let's take the movie line or hidden figure. Either of these two have books that that you could read together as a family afterwards that fill in the pieces. Kids love being detectives. Now, when I say kids, I'm talking probably eight and over on both of these two. Okay. Like, this is not a storybook that's going to keep a three year old amused. But kids love doing things like that wasn't in the movie or why didn't they put that in the story? And if you challenge them, let's read the book and let's find out what's different, they'll really enjoy that and they will get a deeper meaning for so many different things. And they'll be ready to write that essay in high school that I flunked because they will be (laughs) able to start putting. Putting those pieces together and understanding, uh, you know, understanding fact versus fiction and why people do these things, why writers, screenwriters will sometimes hype things up that weren't there in reality and that type of thing. So, so read the book. It's really what it boils
2: down to. Well, Rod Gustafson, we appreciate you, as always, here on the Matt Townsend Show. and. Uh, Go check out Lion and Hidden Figures. I believe they're both PG-13. Is that Actually, correct? PG on Hidden Figures, Ooh, believe it or right. not. that's right. PG. PG. Yeah. All right. Hidden Figures PG, Lion, PG-13. Check them out. And uh, movies based on a true story. They're there to entertain us, but they're also there to educate us. And hopefully you're not bothered if the filmmakers take some creative liberties in the process. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion and continue the, the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. You know, we just uh, finished speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews about a couple of new movie releases that are based on true stories. And now Matt and I are going to to dig a little deeper into this topic and give some examples of movies that alter reality for the sake of entertainment. And I just want to give you a fair warning. Some of the following truths may break your heart and change the way you look at movies based on a true story. You know, what's really interesting is right now, fake news is making news, and it's really a hot topic, and people are not happy about it. And yet we go to these films, they say they're based on a true story, or uh, some are even as bold as to say this is a true story. Yeah. Or if they really don't have a claim to how true it is, it's uh, inspired by true events. There you go. And that's when you know, really not true at all. Not true at all. Nothing to it. Nothing true about it. So some of the creative licenses that these filmmakers will take with the films is that, you know, they'll have what's called a composite character where they're taking elements from all these different people and just putting them into one character. I guess that saves money. I don't know. Um, They'll mess around with the timelines so that they don't they didn't actually occur in the order that they appear on film. Um, they'll do things for dramatic impact, obviously, Mm -hmm. like you said, that's what you want to see. And then there are certain things that are just impossible to know that would never have been documented. Right. Like the dialogue between certain people. So -hmm. they have to make all that up. Right. Well, um, There are a few different categories of this, and I hope I don't burst your bubble with any of these because I know you love the movie Rudy, for instance. Love Rudy. Totally true. Based on a true story, Rudy Rudiger. There's a scene where all of his teammates, he finally gets on the Notre Dame team. Yeah. All the teammates in support of him are throwing their jerseys on the coach's desk, saying they're not going to play unless he can be in the game. Um, And uh, at the end of the movie, just what you did, everybody starts chanting, Rudy. 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 Well, Joe Montana was actually a teammate of his. Who? Joe Montana? Yeah. He's kind of an obscure figure. Um, He said, it's a movie, remember, not all that's true. The crowd wasn't chanting. Nobody threw in their jerseys. He did get in the game, and he did get carried off the field. Hold on. So So, did Joe think they were cheering Joe? Joe, Joe, Joe. I don't know. He's probably jealous. Yeah. Anyway, so that's an an instance uh, where... They just make some stuff up to make somebody seem more heroic.
1: Well, to make little Rudy seem taller.
2: Yeah. Did you see the film Captain Phillips? Yes. Loved it. Totally true. That's based on a true story. Right. But. But what? People that worked with him claimed that Captain Phillips wasn't all that heroic. Wasn't really a captain? Um, They're saying that nobody wanted to work with him and that he ignored safety protocols and sailed too close to the coast. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like the captain got got them in trouble. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, yeah, they almost make it sound like maybe he wasn't such a nice guy. So there's an instance of the or the filmmakers making somebody seem more heroic than yeah. perhaps they yeah. were. Here's an instance of filmmakers taking somebody who is portrayed as a villain who in maybe real life wasn't such a bad guy. Did you see the film Cinderella Man? No. Oh, well, there's a villain in the film who famously uh, kills an opponent in the ring Ooh, and they portray him as being proud of that and just this monster of a guy that doesn't really care about boxing yeah. and the the this man's actual son said the portrayal of my father couldn't have been more wrong and inaccurate they turned a good-hearted fun-loving friendly and warm human being who hated boxing into mr t from rocky 3 with wow. no redeeming characteristics See, that's not fair and basically this man the the boxer who killed the other his opponent in the ring basically said this this haunted me forever you know, oh, that I killed this person
1: and they made a movie about
2: it. Right. Come um, on. Then there are films that will try to raise the stakes, make it seem more dramatic than it actually is so that right. you can have a more sus- uh, suspenseful experience like you. I know you saw the film Argo. Yes. A lot of that stuff was fabricated, what? you know, where really? they're, they're having the chase scene at the end yeah. where they're getting on the plane and well, the yeah. authorities are the Iranian, pulling yeah. up in police cars. That didn't happen. It was oh. much more smooth sailing there at the end than they led us to believe. Are you sure? Yeah. It said based on a true story. Based on a true story. So, so that means the basis of the film. So is somewhere truth. in the movie there was some truth. There's some truth there, and then this is the biggest offender that I know of. Have you seen Fargo? N- no. Okay. No. Fargo, in, uh, it centers around a murder and this uh, pregnant cop who's trying to solve the murder. Wow. Okay? okay. And at the very beginning of the movie, the most you'll ever see at the beginning of a movie is based on a true story. And then maybe at the end, you'll see like these characters are, you know, fictitious, yada, yada, yada. At the beginning of this movie, it says, This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Ah. And yet... Not really. As they've interviewed the filmmakers over the years, the story of how close to the truth this is changes over time. Until in 2015, Joel Cohen, who uh, said... The story was completely made up oh. or or as we like to say, the only thing true about it is that it's a story. See, that's what put the far in Fargo. Yep. Far from the truth. Yes. And now they they use the same uh, slogan or they use the same uh, pre-credit disclaimer on the TV show Fargo, Do even they, though it's completely false. They say
1: it's all based on a true story.
2: Uh, well, there's a guy in the movie who gets put in a wood chipper, and I think they read a news story where somebody puts somebody in a wood chipper. So... I mean, just because you put somebody in a wood chipper doesn't mean it's coming from the same story. <laughs> and the, here's something interesting because we have been talking about fake news. Yeah. And there's an area here where the movie world and political news and all that interweaves because there's a new movie that came out today that Rod did not interview – uh, Review because it's rated R. It's called A Case for – or A Cure for Wellness, and it's about this worker who goes to find his CEO at this wellness center in the Swiss Alps. Okay, And (laughs) so to promote the movie, the filmmakers fabricated a story that said that Trump and Putin met up prior to the election at this Swiss Alps uh, resort. Oh, yeah. And so they – So everyone was – they were like – See, they were meeting together to promote their movie. It's a true movie. It's a true right. story. So they came out today with an article and apologized for See? completely lying about it. See, by the way, that is a story you can't believe. But have you ever
1: heard of the movie Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal? The movie with uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah, apparently
2: that is totally true. So interesting. Yeah. Do you care when you go to the movies? Do you care that they've taken artistic liberties? To make it a more pleasurable, entertaining, suspenseful. No, but I also have to then tell myself, don't think of that as history
1: in the making, right? Like I can't pretend like what I see is really. Take it true. with a grain of salt. Like, for example, I, yeah, you, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're the one that told me this, that the Hobbit was based on a true story. Bilbo Baggins or some
2: guy named Bilbo was kind of a lonelier man. Well, uh, there is a place called New Zealand, very green, Mm -hmm. and there are some people out there with very hairy feet. Okay. So those parts of it are extremely true. (laughs) So the next time you see a film based on a true story, just be sure to swallow it with a grain of salt. One option for the weekend is the film The Founder. Uh, which uh, is based on the true, I'm doing air quotes, story of Ray Kroc of McDonald's fame. It stars Michael Keaton. We'll take a quick break. When we return, we'll be speaking with a couple of friends who would never tell a lie. Spencer and Jason from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Shines in a different way And I smell the sea
1: Welcome back, friends. Some music befitting our next two guests. Of course, the good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer Linton, Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen.
7: This is Blue Dog signing in. <laughs> Red Dog, are you there? Red Dog, over. <laughs> this is, uh, this, this I'm music... I'm just about, I can't answer
1: this question. <laughs> you, Why well, you, don't, you don't play this...
7: They're dead, Matt! They're all dead! (laughs) I love
4: the Mission Impossible movies. Love them.
7: Do you? Love them. The
4: first one is the best, though. Is the best. It is my favorite. My second favorite is the one that most recently came out, Rogue Nation.
7: Okay, so because I'm Tom Cruise is
4: hanging out the side of a plane. Which
7: he really did. That was amazing. Okay, so I want to watch one of them. Which one should I watch? The first one. The first one, without question. Watch the first one and
4: then watch the last one, which is Rogue Nation. They are so good. You can skip two. It's fine. My favorite scene in the first one is when Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. Hey, spoiler alert. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, this is a spoiler oh, never alert. Never mind. I don't it, want to see it now. It oh, did man. come out in like 1996. Oh, just remember. Just remember the uh, fish tank scene, okay? Ooh. The gum. Oh, baby. With the gum. Oh, and the way, the way Tom Cruise is running... Like he, it looks like he's running so fast. Oh
7: yeah! Wait, are you telling me, Matt? You have not seen the Mission
1: Impossible movies? I have, but years ago. But I haven't. But
4: I need to watch it again. I
1: don't know. I watch them really fast. I don't think I pay much attention. I'm probably writing or doing something while I'm watching it. Cameo by
4: Emilio Estevez.
1: So there's yes. a fish tank scene. I remember something about a fish the tank fish
4: scene. The fish tank scene is
1: hey.
7: lit. And if, there's, and if there's not another reason, I mean, the fact that they're great movies is is the biggest reason to watch them. The other is that they're single-handedly keeping Ving Rhames uh, in the public eye, besides yes. the Arby's commercials. <laughs>
1: so so for no other reason we ought to watch it for that
7: (laughs) yes Yes, bing rames is is back you know amongst us
1: man we struck a nerve here this is your favorite arby's now you want arby's (laughs) (laughs) and a good movie hey um a little sports for you i know there's some news that you guys i know follow closely uh ronda rousey is engaged
4: Oh, I did not know that. I did know
7: not that. know that. And yeah. I'm on I was literally on TMZ like 5 minutes ago.
1: <laughs> Do you know who Travis Brown is?
4: Travis Brown. Uh he,
1: extreme athlete? I think I don't know. He he seems to be a mixed martial arts guy because he kind of has cauliflower ear.
4: Oh,
0: okay. Because well, so he's his, a wrestler
1: uh, apparently. Um okay. but would you dare? I mean, can you imagine just being a skinny little, you know, kind of me? Not that I'm skinny, but just a kind of a scrawny guy being married to to her, no. Ronda Rousey. I mean, no. yeah, this guy's beefy. He can, you know, they can wrestle.
7: Uh, here's what I want to know. I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm just, if you're <laughs> if you're their child, oh boy, you
1: better be able to fight. Yeah. What if you're a dancer? What if you're a dancer? You're not a fighter, you know. What if- I think
4: Rhonda has the capacity within her own soul to love her child for whatever that child brings to the table. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I really do. In fact, Trevor Maddich of ESPN, one of our weekly guests during football season, Maddich Mondays, yes. met Ronda Rousey and had a chance to talk to her on campus in Bristol. He, she,
1: he's not the one that she she took out and broke his arm. No, but okay. he
4: said that she was so relaxed and approachable, not in the fight scene. I mean, it's yeah. a shtick. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, she has to turn it on and be like super aggressive, crazy, almost to her demise, right? Right, right. Absolutely. It was to her demise. But when she's not in the ring, like he says she is just the coolest lady.
1: But what but wait what happens when she gets you in an arm bar or whatever?
4: Well, for the first, I don't know, fifty five competitors she faced or whatever the number <laughs> is, it was not a yeah, good thing. Yeah, you may thing. have a chance against her now. Yeah. She hasn't she hasn't
7: done well the last couple of fights. has <laughs> oh, been it's been a rough Not go. that I want to pick a yeah, fight I, with her I, I because would, I would lose. But you could handle, no, you could I handle could not. for a minute, yeah. No, I'm one of the scrawny guys,
1: so no, I, I, that ain't
7: you're a beefcake. Um,
1: uh, by the way, what do you think about uh, Cavaliers?
4: Oh, I think the Cleveland Cavaliers and specifically LeBron James playoff version of LeBron is the GOAT, man. That a was
7: A 25-point comeback. Yeah. You're down 25 at halftime and you win the game? That's crazy. <laughs> it's unheard of on over, the road. Over. So that was amazing. Yeah.
1: And what, what, by the way, what happened to the Celtics? Hey, I thought they were
7: in this thing. They, well, they,
4: they just they a break. They may be now. They just caught a break.
7: What? Uh, Re- and
4: break being the word of emphasis. Yeah, l- literally
7: a break. Rajon Rondo, former Celtic, now playing for the Bulls, apparently fractured his thumb, oh. will not need surgery, no way. but will miss game three out indefinitely. Not, not bueno. No es bueno. I mean, they still have Dwayne Wade. They still have Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. They still have, uh, I forget which Lopez twin it is.
0: Mario? Is it Mario?
7: Mario Lopez? It's Robin. It is Robin. Oh, okay. Yes. It's not Brooke. It's Robin. Okay. <laughs>
4: one of the Lopez's. I don't. Yeah.
7: Know. <laughs> not not the
1: one on Save by the Bell, is it? Hey, no. I,
4: I think the Celtics are a sleeping giant, which is the theme of today's BYU Sports Nation show. Oh, okay. So let's do that. Uh, so you're going to talk about sleeping giants? On Absolutely. Your show. Ian Rappaport of the <laughs> NFL Network pulled out the name Taysom Hill as a sleeper quarterback for this year's NFL draft. What? He said nobody's talking about him. He's got an injury-plagued past. But when you look at his film, there are several teams and scouts from teams that say this guy has a future in the NFL if he can stay healthy. Really? Which I have not heard from anybody, at least in the last calendar year. Yeah, there are, there are reports
7: out there that uh, at least one team, the Packers have already flown Taysom Hill out <gasps> for a visit. Oh, the Packers. How cool would
4: that be? Taysom Hill wouldn't be an amazing special teams player. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be cool. Right? Would you send him... Like, with that speed and... Get him on the wedge?
7: Ooh. Yes.
1: Ooh, a wedge of salad with blue cheese dressing? No. Love it. No.
4: I like, I like wedges, but I hate blue cheese dressing, Matt. Why'd you have to ruin it with that?
1: Oh, then you put a little bacon on it? Nom 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 nom
4: nom. Anyway, we also have... The tenth place finisher in the Boston Marathon, Jared Ward, with us in Studio B. Sweet. He and his ninth place finishing mustache, right, Jason? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's a battle between the two. I know, you got to look good. <laughs> got to look good. Anything else on the show? New assignee from BYU basketball, Ryland Burgesson, on why he chose BYU and what's the chance that BYU volleyball does not make the NCAA tournament? What? What's that? What? Oh, man. It's a yeah, great show. Loaded show.
1: Guys, it's only four and a half
4: minutes away. Uh-huh. Go get ready. All right.
1: Go do your push-ups. Knock them dead, gentlemen. Honestly, guys, four and a half minutes. So all you got to do is just coast with us for the next four and a half minutes, and then you can go to uh, BYU Sports Nirvana and enjoy the whole show with Spencer and Jason. Um I promised you earlier that we would be talking about a man that takes revenge on his noisy neighbors by buying a building shaker and leaving it on all weekend. Listen to this. You can't stand your noisy neighbors for another second. Have we got an idea for you? A man from China named Zhao um, was also having problems with his noisy neighbors upstairs uh, recently. So the family has a young boy and Zhao complained that all the jumping around the boy was doing was disturbing his rest. While he tried to go upstairs to talk to the family about the situation, nothing changed. So Zhao went online, bought a building shaker for $58, looking to give the noisy neighbors a taste of their own medicine. Powered by a motor, the machine is designed to continually thump against walls. At 8 p.m. last Friday night, Zhao switched the machine on and left his flat for the weekend. (laughs) Wow. Uh, with the constant thumping on the floor uh, driving them insane, the neighbors went to the property management office but found that there was nothing that they could do to help them. The family was even contacted the police, who were unable to track down uh, Zhao down. Finally, on Sunday afternoon, with the machine thumping along for two days straight, Zhao returned to his flat, and officers were able to get him to turn the
2: contraption off. It's not clear
1: if Zhao was punished for his act of revenge.
2: Now that's going to be a pleasant neighborly relationship yeah. after that experience. I'm Wait sure. till they
1: have the uh, HOA meeting,
2: <laughs> oh. uh, Mr.
1: Zhao, You're going to need to get rid of the building thumper, the building shaker. Isn't is uh, isn't that a new shake weight where you shake that weight and it builds up your arm? Is that what he did? Ah, uh, <laughs> no. But he else. wasn't. He wasn't in the apartment. No, he wasn't. It was a building shaker. Uh, You know, if you can't communicate, if you can't talk, if no one's going to listen to you, I guess buy a building shaker. It was a $60 solution. And I bet now the people upstairs are going to, you know, they're going to be a lot more calm. Hey, our hero story of the day is a good one. It's a, a school rallies behind their beloved crossing guard as she battles cancer. A Texas elementary school is showing their support for their crossing guard. Um, The staff and students at Russ School in Houston have already raised $5,800 of their $10,000 goal on behalf of San Juana Torres, who's 59. She's worked for the school for 20 years. She said, I was overwhelmed. No one has ever done anything for me. I was happy. It was like our principal uh, has always said to me, Miss Torres, we are your family. We're going to take care of you. They are my family. Torres started working at Rusk in 1997. Since then, she's helped make sure all the children safely reach their classrooms. I enjoy seeing the kids and seeing their faces in the morning as well as in the afternoon. I watch over them and make sure that they're okay. All five of her sons also attended the school. Anyway, the kids have rallied. The, The kids love her and they're going to be there for her as she goes through some of the her treatments for cancer so the, the school the, the crossing guard everybody at rusk school in houston you are the heroes of the day on the matt townsend show that is exactly what uh, being a member of a community is all about and that's why we do this show to show you that there is good in the world my friends and you by the way are part of that good so let's, uh, let's take this weekend. Let's go love the people that are closest to us, and let's look out for those that might need a little hand up. Um, until Monday, take care of each other. We'll be back again Monday, 9 to noon Eastern Time. You can also go find our podcast on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. We're everywhere. Go to byuradio.org. Go look up Matt Townsend on um, Facebook. Look us up on our Twitter page, at Doctor Matt Show. We're everywhere, folks. But until Monday, let's take care of each other, and uh, we'll talk to you again Monday.